investment in uh, what you might call a new operation warp speed to produce the next generation variant agnostic vaccines uh, and therapeutics. At this point, December 8th, uh, we really don't know, as far as I know, whether House and Senate appropriators will address this request in the omnibus spending package, but really it's critically important that they do so. Um, we hope to have two members of Congress testify this afternoon over the uh, House schedule. They make that impossible, and I was hoping they would answer. The second uh, relevant matter that's still uh, alive on, on Capitol Hill is the uh, bipartisan proposal from the Senate Health Committee, co-sponsored by uh, the um, Senator Murray and, and Senator uh, Burr, the two uh, leading members of both parties, which would create a 9-11 type commission, nonpartisan, bipartisan, to investigate uh, the outbreak of COVID-19, our response to it, and again, how we can be better prepared the next time. I mean, in part, our commission and others, of course, have been doing some of the same work, but there's no substitute, in my opinion, for a commission uh, created with the uh, imprimatur of the mandate from Congress uh, and uh, and the president who would sign the legislation. And there is, I gather, a pretty lively attempt to um, include this proposal from the Senate Health Committee, which came out of the committee unanimously again, uh, onto one of the two um, so-called must-pass bills before the end of the session. And I sure hope that uh, uh, they're able to do it. That would be a real, a very consistent with what, what we've been trying to do and, and really good for the country. Uh, with that, I must apologize to the witnesses on the first uh, panel, particularly um, I have to leave for about, about an hour to go to a time-sensitive meeting up on Capitol Hill about another subject. But um, Asha has uh, prepared Secretary Shalala uh, to take over, and uh, I happily turn the gavel to you, Donna. Thank you. Thank you. I want to make. Oops. Thank you. I want to make sure that we get um, uh, comments from uh, the other members before we uh, uh, before we start. So thank you, Senator Lieberman. Um, good morning, and welcome to my colleagues up on the stage. And is. Uh, good to see you, Governor Ridge. Um, we want to welcome uh, the excellent speakers who have gathered here to speak today. We all appreciate the opportunity to dig further into response to recovery from and the mitigation of biological events. The federal government receives much of the visibility when it comes to the response, but we all know that the frontline responders are the clinicians, the EMTs, the firefighters, the police officers, the emergency dispatchers, the public health officials and many others, the vast majority of which are not directly federal employees. These state, local, tribal, and territorial individuals must, direct, must directly um, address the biological threat, really any threat, as well as the ensuring um, uncertainty, fear, and panic that it creates. Um, our nation's hospitals Physicians, uh, nurses are still deeply engaged with COVID and other diseases, by the way. Uh, their success depends on how many beds, <laughs> workers, supplies are available or not available. And attrition is a much less obvious enemy. 
For the healthcare and public health workforce, the pandemic is certainly not over, and the increased incidence and prevalence of other diseases only, only makes this situation much more serious. As a native of Cleveland, I particularly look forward to hearing about how the Cleveland Clinic has addressed COVID and the lessons it has learned from the pandemic, which is, of course, my hometown. Um, the government coordination with private sector partners is important, and we should do everything we can to further integrate um, the two during the response to biological events. And as we look at the recommendations from our previous reports, and contemplate new actions for the administration and Congress, we have to keep in mind that all of this begins and ends uh, locally. I have some other remarks that I may give uh, uh, later, but I want to get on uh, to comments uh, uh, from Senator, from Governor Ridge, as well as the other uh, members here. Governor Ridge. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to see you, and I'm very pleased to join my Hello, commissioners again, although this is virtually, and I look forward to our in engaging discussion and to join you uh, in the real world in the near future. You know, it's really rather remarkable as I sit here today thinking about the discussion that we will generate, that we released our national blueprint for biodefense seven years ago. Obviously, a great deal has happened since we looked at the state of our national biodefense and I'm particularly proud we developed very specific recommendations. And then, unlike a lot of other reports in Washington, D.C., we had very, very specific action items that we thought were important to implement those recommendations. And it's good to note that Congress and several administrations have, have actually addressed some of our recommendations. I'm certainly convinced that those recommendations that we made several years ago are as relevant today as they were at that time. As the nation tries to move on from COVID-19 while responding to multiple other pandemics, now is a good time to revisit our foundational report. It's as relevant today as it was back in 2015. In particular, you must know that as a, as a former governor and someone that worked with Senator Stafford to rebuild the FEMA agency, because so many of the principles about responding, recovery, and mitigation apply to natural events, weather events, as it does to the bio concerns that we have. Yeah. Once the immediate danger has passed, you know, you, you, you learn from what you did right in responding to the danger, and you know, unfortunately, you learn from what you did not do effectively, what went wrong. And then you take those lessons and you use them to make yourself more resilient. So the impact of the next natural disaster is less than it would have been without taking mitigation measures. And a lot of what we've, what we've learned in the natural weather response and recovery is how critical mitigation measures are. I believe this principle is as true for biological events as it is for hurricanes, earthquakes, and tornadoes. Yet the threat and the need to respond is often, over, is often overshadowed by discussions of longer-term activities that require, that require significant mitigation measures. We know that COVID will likely never go away. 
So at what stage do we as a society determine that the response to the pandemic is over, particularly as the virus continues to mutate? We are certainly looking at a complex situation in which we must respond, recover, mitigate, and prepare for biological events simultaneously. There has unfortunately been a dizzying, a dizzying number of diseases that have emerged and reemerged since the onset of COVID. Monkeypox, RSV, pandemic influenza, Ebola, even measles. We need to prepare now for the next threat, which could be months, weeks, or just days away. Mother Nature is agile and more complex than, than we are, so we have to prepare for this. And that's why I think we're focused so much on mitigation. What have we learned from previous experiences and how do we apply those learnings to prepare for the future events so we can mitigate, diminish their impact when not if they occur, but we know they will occur. So it's when, but not if. As a country, we cannot afford to lose the ground we've gained. Can't afford not to apply the lessons learned during the pandemic. As events and other matters, political and other, social and otherwise, may move our attention and turn our priorities to something else. We cannot afford as a society to be caught off guard when each biological threat arises. We need to understand that an additional biological threat will arise and be prepared for it. So we have to stay focused on that regardless of what other priorities we have as a government. In advance, and I too unfortunately have, uh, have for uh, medical reasons. I've got an appointment I've got to deal with. I want to thank in advance all our speakers for joining us. As a former governor, I am particularly pleased we will hear the perspective of the National Governors Association. Clearly, it's our nation's governors who carry great responsibilities in time of crisis, as we've seen the last three years. It's an incredible partnership between the states and the federal dealing with Mother Nature's challenges as well as natural disaster, natural disasters. The federal government must provide the support necessary for these and other non-federal leaders to address threats such as COVID. Hopefully today's discussion will help us refresh our next blueprint for biodefense. Again, I want to thank my colleagues for the opportunity to work them on this, work with them on this commission. It's seminal in its effort. It's about responding, recovery and mitigation. And I look forward to the learnings from the impressive group of speakers that have accepted our invitation to participate today. I wanna thank each and every one of you and wish you the very best. There are multiple, there are multiple religious holidays in the next several weeks. And I may you, whatever they may be, whatever you may be celebrating, I wish you the very best over the holiday season. And again, my sincere appreciation for those who are going to participate in this uh, commission meeting today. Response, recovery, and mitigation 
is what the commission is all about. And the participants today in this discussion will help us refresh and, and refocus our efforts to continue to improve our series of recommendations and work with Congress to make sure the country is far better prepared in the future to respond to COVID-like events, God forbid, they'll happen, but they will happen. Mother Nature can pretty much guarantee that for us. So again, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Senator Shalhoub. Thank you, thank you, Governor. Uh, Senator Daschle. Thank you, Donna. I, uh, I'm gonna be very brief, I just welcome. Uh, that isn't, uh, this one isn't working, and I'm not sure that I would just welcome our experts and uh, say how pleased we are that you could be with us this morning. I uh, agree with so much of what has already been said. I, I, there's an old saying in Washington that when all is said and done, there's always a lot more said than done. And I worry that when it comes to this effort, there's going to be a lot more said than done. Uh, we have an opportunity <laughs> in the next few weeks to pass the PREVENT Act. And I must say, it serves as a metaphor for the the country, maybe even the globe's response to this whole horrid experience. If we can't even pass the PREVENT Act, which is just the first step to trying to address this, this challenge we face about the inevitable consequences of yet another pandemic, uh, then shame on us. So let's hope that there's more said or more done than said when it comes to this whole challenge. And let's make sure that before the end of the year, we pass the PREVENT Act. Thank you very much. Representative Brooks. Thank you. I want to thank the panelists who've come today and all of those who are coming after them. I want to remind everybody that in 2023, besides the passage of the PREVENT Act, which I hope happens in 2022, but in 2023, we'll have the reauthorization of PAPA, um, which was signed into law in 2019. And as a member who was very involved in that, please know that your testimony, your ideas, your suggestions very much make up the recommendations that this commission put forth to Congress, to the House and Senate, and really helped craft that legislation in 2019. And I'm very proud to be a part of this now, uh, but want to thank you, particularly those of you who are on the front lines, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank, thank you very much. Representative Greenwood. There we go. There's another saying in Washington, which is everything's been said, but not everyone has said it. And uh, rather than be guilty of uh, repeating what's already been said, I'll uh, welcome the testimony of the, of the experts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me introduce uh, panel one, which is called the non-federal response, though all of us know there you get a lot of federal money um, as part of this. Um, Dr. Chris Rodriguez is director of the District of Columbia Homeland Security Management Agency. He is participating on behalf of the National Emergency Management Association, which represents state emergency managers. Ms. Brittany Roy is program director for public health at the National Governors Association. And Dr. Robert Wiley is chief of medical operations at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, Dr. Rodriguez. Well, thank you. Oh. Can you hear me okay? Or? Yes. Okay. Um, first, thank you uh, very much to the distinguished panel. Um, we really, I really appreciate the opportunity to sit here on behalf of uh, emergency managers across the country uh, to talk a little bit about the challenges that we face 
um, in managing uh, emergencies uh, and all types of threats and hazards, but particular, with a particular focus on uh, biodefense. Um, here in the District of Columbia, uh, I am the director of the uh, DC Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. Um, I am uh, appointed to this position by Mayor Muriel Bowser and serve in her cabinet. Uh, my agency was on the front lines of the COVID response here in the city. Um, we never teleworked. Uh, we showed up every day at the DC Department of Health to support our response to the pandemic, including uh, standing up multiple testing sites across the city, as well as the city's what was then second largest hospital uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the Walter Washington Convention Center, where we uh, worked with the US Army Corps of Engineers to create 437 uh, beds. Uh, fortunately, we never had to use that facility um, because and one of the key themes uh, that was in your 2015 report um, was our constant communication with our healthcare system here in the city and understanding their capacity and uh, helping them augment also their bed capacity um, by about 50% across our system. And that did require um, funding uh, those hospitals to, to uh, expand their capacity. And uh, fortunately, with the assistance of FEMA and our public <clears throat> assistance reimbursements, uh, we were able to get reimbursed as a city for that. But initial outlays, of course, were from the mayor uh, and from our local budget. Um, another key theme that I think is really important that runs through this, uh, this uh, commission and certainly the report and hopefully our discussion today is the importance of, of communication with the public. Um, it was mentioned during the opening comments uh, that uh, leadership is really important in, in, this, uh, in this situation that we find ourselves in, in this threat environment. And all of these disasters are local. Um, we often talk about global threats, local response. At the end of the day, uh, there is some federal resources and some federal response. We have seen um, testing sites, federal testing sites, and emergency medical stations uh, here in the city and throughout the country through the COVID pandemic, but the vast majority of the response is on local authorities. And so uh, the communication with the public and here in the district telling residents what it is we need them to do uh, is absolutely critical. And uh, getting clear guidance uh, also from our federal partners helps inform our chief executives, uh, the mayor, a governor, uh, to tell residents what to do. Um, at the end of the day, what we found throughout the pandemic is that residents and the public will listen to those officials that are closest to them um, in terms of their um, local uh, leaders, um, religious leaders as well. And it was really a, a, uh, a testament, I think, to the leadership here in the city that uh, Washington, D.C. experienced some of the lowest rates of transmission uh, of COVID, even at the height of the pandemic. And I think it's also important to note, um, and I'll say this on behalf of my colleagues across the country, because we just had our National Emergency Management Association conference uh, three weeks ago in Stowe, Vermont, and every single director of emergency management there um, expressed the burnout that their employees are feeling from the pandemic. Uh, emergency management, fire EMS, police, all of our first responders um, really didn't have options to telework throughout the pandemic. 
um, they were constantly out there making sure that the public was safe. What we are seeing in our local um, in, in our local employment statistics is that a lot of people are beginning to leave these professions because of the, um, and in some respects, we are still in the response phase of the pandemic almost, uh, almost three years um, after uh, it was first detected. So uh, that is also something that we are struggling with and, and one that, you know, I'm not sure there's much of a federal role there, but just so you, uh, just so the panel, of course, understands the, the constraints and the challenges that local, that local uh, jurisdictions and states have I think is, uh, is really critical. I look forward to, to talking in a little bit more detail about what we do here in the district. We have to also uh, remind ourselves that even as the nation's capital, uh, we are part of a region uh, that includes uh, 24 jurisdictions uh, in Northern Virginia and in Maryland. Uh, so we can also talk a little bit about um, our coordination and training and exercise with those jurisdictions as well. So thank you very much. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. Uh, Ms. Roy. It's okay. Hi, everyone. Um, good morning. My name is Brittany Roy. I'm the Program Director for Public Health at the National Governors Association. Um, I come to you in a unique role. Prior to joining um, the National Governors Association, I served as the Senior Health Policy Advisor to Governor Hutchinson in Arkansas and joined NGA in 2020, so um, November of 2020. So I have firsthand experience on what um, happened at the ground or root level at the state and now at the national level um, being with NGA. Um, I want to highlight that National Governors Association is the only organization that represents all 55 of our nation's governors, so that includes the five territories um, as well. Um, um, like Dr. Rodriguez um, mentioned, a lot of the response happened at the state and local um, level, and I can attest to that. Um, every governor um, was involved and cared about what happened, um, how to balance the health of their citizens as well as the health of the economy. So at NGA, um, we are unique in the sense that we don't just cover health. We have 14 other program areas. And I'm a little biased uh, because I think public health is everything, especially when you talk about the social drivers of health. So like typical NGA fashion, when there is an emergency, our governors sound the alarm and we rally the troops and we pull everyone together to figure out how do we get the job done. Um, I jokingly say our governors, um, they do many things well, many things well, convening uh, people to find solutions is one of them. They have to move quickly because unlike on the Hill, the folks in the states can get to the Capitol pretty easily if, if things are not going right. Um, so with those 14 program areas, we saw um, the pandemic touch every single one, whether it was child care, whether it was education, um, public health preparedness, um, cybersecurity, you name it, every sector was impacted. And because states are at the front line and responsible for their public health um, systems, NGA aided our governors in setting up 
task force, if you will, um, convening them weekly on calls, whether it was with the administration, um, the uh, folks at HHS, CDC, to just try to get our heads wrapped around um, exactly what was going on. And if you would allow me, um, and I can go into more detail about this later, but identified um, with the help of some colleagues, um, three areas um, that we could approve on in a bipartisan fashion. So the detection of biosecurity threats, categorizing biosecurity threats, and um, responding to a biosecurity emergency. Um, what we saw in the thick of it is we were not prepared. I don't think I have to tell anyone that. Um, we did not have the capability to load balance, if you will, um, to see across states. Um, I can remember my time in Arkansas where there was a point we uh, could not get testing supplies or reagents, and we often felt like we were bidding against other states just for um, supplies. Our laboratory systems are woefully um, under-resourced, as well as our um, data systems. And so at NGA, we, we recognized that, and we reached out. Um, we are... If you guys don't know we're a bipartisan organization, we reached out um, to many stakeholders and said, what are we missing? That's our colleagues at um, um, ASTO, which is the Association for State um, Territory Health Officials, NACHO, um, a whole host of individuals, and said, help us think through this. Um, we also um, reached out to our um, academic partners because we know these solutions cannot be created without um, a holistic um, point of view. So we employed um, folks from Harvard Medical School to help us think through the really scientific pieces of what was happening during um, the emergency. We were in constant communication with um, our colleagues um, at the local level to say, what are we missing? What needs to trickle up? What is not trickling down? How do we solve this? Um, and I won't take much more of your time um, and happy to answer any questions um, at the end. Thank you very much. Dr. Wiley? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here today. And just let me take a minute to put the Cleveland Clinic into perspective. We have uh, 76,000 employees. We have a hospital and a cancer center in Abu Dhabi. Our newest hospital opened in London. We have five hospitals and surrounding healthcare facilities in Florida. We have a wellness center in Toronto and a brain health center in Las Vegas. But the majority of our operation, 13 hospitals surrounded by family health centers and ambulatory surgery centers, is in Ohio with over 50,000 employees. The first patient with COVID in Ohio was uh, March 9th of 2020. The governor, DeWine, the week before, actually called us together, the major health systems, public health, including uh, the health departments at the state, county, and uh, city levels, together along with the payer community and said, how are we going to manage COVID? We had done some modeling, which we brought to the meeting, which was frightening in terms of our capacity and the number of patients who might fill our hospitals. And so we suggested that instead of looking at the emergency management agencies, which were good on a local level, that we used the natural lines of medical referral that had already been established in the state to create zones. So we divided in Ohio into three zones. So I'm the zone one lead of Northern Ohio. There's a zone two, which is the Columbus area and in Southern Ohio around Cincinnati was zone three. And the governor asked us to coordinate the medical care delivery system within that zone. There was a lot to learn. One is we looked at congregate facilities and 
who were they and where were they and how did we get a hold of them? There are over 900 in Ohio, but there are over 400 in Zone 1. We didn't know necessarily who they were or who to contact or who to put them in touch with in case they got in trouble with an outbreak of COVID. The other thing was the federally qualified healthcare center. So we knew that they were there, but we've never really worked with them as a large medical delivery system in terms of the Cleveland Clinic. So we had to get to know them. And then we had to get to know much better the city and the county departments of health. And we wove those together so that we had a triad of congregate facilities, hospitals, and public health. And from that triad and that local hospital, we went to the regional hospitals and then to the major health centers in the three urban areas of Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. The other thing that we did was once the outbreak occurred was that we started testing. And when testing was limited, we developed strike force teams to go into a nursing home and test everybody so that we could tell who needed to be isolated, caregivers as well as employees, and who could continue working and who we needed to separate out from those who were infected. That really, in terms of the number of people involved, falls to the large healthcare delivery systems because that's where the capacity is, not only in beds, but in personnel to do these type of things. So that worked very well in terms of the testing once that became available. We also did mass testing sites manned by the hospital personnel, and we divided it up within the zone into each of the major metropolitan areas, and it was mainly manned by the hospital personnel to do mass testing. The same thing occurred with mass vaccination, which we're still doing in terms of vaccination sites, manned by the hospital personnel with some coordination with the uh, county, city, and Ohio departments of health. Once, the, once we got into the Omicron wave, which occurred in, if you'll remember, December and January of, uh, in February of this year, we had a huge outbreak in Ohio, centered in northern Ohio, right around Cleveland. In fact, seven of the top 12 counties in the United States for a week were outbreaks around Cleveland and the five surrounding counties. With that, what we had to do was to load balance. And what, what do I mean by load balance? Well, one of the first big outbreaks was as the Elkton Federal Penitentiary, and that's in Columbiana County on the east side of Ohio. So they've got about 1,200 um, people working there or who are inmates there in that correctional facility, and they had an outbreak and they really couldn't segregate the prisoners out. They really overran the local hospitals. So what we did was we said, we're gonna load balance. And we said, if you get overwhelmed, don't worry, we're gonna take your patients to Akron. If Akron, if Akron gets full, we're gonna take them to Cleveland. And if Cleveland gets full, we're gonna to start to distributing to the other zones. So just telling people that we, had a, that we had a way to manage reduced a lot of anxiety about are we gonna be overwhelmed and who's there to help. We also created on a statewide level, a virtual warehouse for PPE. So we could distribute PPE to the most needed areas. And we did it for ventilators as well. So people would call for ventilators, we would evaluate the request. And if we had time, we'd send it through the state. If we didn't have time, we put ventilators on the Cleveland Clinic loading dock and we shipped them out immediately within hours to the hospitals that needed them. We also developed the virtual telehealth capability ICU to ICU, so we didn't have to transport all those patients in. The last thing I'll mention that we did was we developed a model of geospatial analytics. So what does that mean? That means that we developed a testing capability and a recording capability so that we could tell if two people had COVID within so many meters on what day, and we could, look, and we could start to identify outbreaks very early. 
And that geospatial uh, analytics was then taken over by the Ohio Hospital Association. And we're trying to get it put up by the state Department of Health right now, because you can, you can not only do it for COVID, you can also do it for other things. So infant mortality or outbreaks of infant mortality, outbreaks of drug overdose hitting emergency departments, which we can recognize within hours of the time of a positive test, and we can react much more quickly. So with that, I'll be happy to answer questions during the discussion period. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, let me ask two quick questions, in, um, and then I'll turn it over to Representative uh, Greenwood. Um, you didn't, Dr. Wiley, you didn't mention pharmacies as part of your strategy. We certainly used uh, pharmacies a, a great deal, and that's a good point. Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, pharmacies, particularly giving the, uh, the medications, and then for sites of testing, once we got testing available, we had drop-off within pharmacies. The pharmacists also, uh, and we have pharmacy residency programs at the clinic, actually uh, serve independently to augment medical care in hypertension and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and diabetes, lessening the load and freeing up other healthcare workers to manage COVID. Could you have moved patients around if the federal government hadn't come in with a lot of COVID money because of the reimbursement challenges? I think it was essential that, uh, that we had the money in terms of our ability to move all those patients around and particularly standing up the uh, the medical care facilities. So we had a decision to make once we stopped doing elective surgery in Ohio, once we got into the Omicron part of the pandemic. So we had uh, doctors and employees who weren't necessarily busy, um, but we needed them to move into taking care of COVID patients and they bring others in to take care of those COVID patients and not lay people off or not stop paying them in terms of because they weren't doing their specialty care. So that ability to take an orthopedic surgeon, for example, and have them help out on a COVID floor uh, when they're not doing elective orthopedic surgery was, a, was essential. That must have been an interesting conversation. Yeah, <laughs> indeed it was. The bots. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Dr. Rodriguez, um, uh, DC used an outside strategy and you know, one would expect it in a place like Miami. Uh, and obviously we heard some reference to Cleveland uh, doing vaccinations outside. It may be, the developing world does this all the time. It may be the first time in the United States that we did vaccinations and testing outside in tents and in um, other kinds of facilities. Could you talk a little about the DC strategy? Absolutely. Um, it's a great point about doing them outside. Uh, it meant that you had, didn't our, have to clean facilities. Yes, it was, it was about um, transmission, having uh, large numbers of people in an indoor facility um, was considered a risk. Mm -hmm. um, one that our health director uh, noted and one that the mayor approved um, to make sure that we were uh, that we were putting people in the safest position possible to get tested. We saw that there was a lot of interest in getting tested as well. Uh, the strategy was for um, three large sites uh, strategically located across the city, as well as utilizing our firehouses, um, which community members in all of our wards are sort of familiar with, um, to actually uh, make vaccinations and testing um, more available to our residents so they could actually walk to them uh, rather than drive. Thank you. And Ms. Roy, um, let me uh, um, ask some questions about your Arkansas experience because um, we heard Dr. Wiley talk about a regional approach. In Arkansas, was it a statewide approach to dealing with COVID? 
It was a state, yes, correct, statewide approach. Um, and this is unique and not every state has a centralized um, health department. Some of them are decentralized, right. meaning uh, in Arkansas, our state health department is the lead and then the local departments report up. So our secretary of health reports to the governor. Mm -hmm. um, in other states like Massachusetts, there are hundreds, um, I would say, of local health departments, not right. all trickling up um, mm -hmm. to the governor. Thank you. Um, Representative Greenland. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Rodriguez, uh, I think you began by saying we weren't prepared. Uh, nearly three years in, you've obviously learned a lot of lessons. Cities learned a lot of lessons. Um, if you woke up tomorrow and knew for certain that we were about to commence on another pandemic, much like the one or, or somewhat like the one we've just experienced, um, what would scare you the most about your level of preparedness? You know, I, I, um, I don't think anyone, I mean, maybe there are a few people across the country that could have anticipated that the pandemic would shut down essentially the country uh, for as long as it did, not just the country, but the world. I think there are a lot of us who uh, recognize the severity of the threat, but didn't appreciate, and myself included, didn't appreciate the cascading impacts of the pandemic, not just on um, our public health system, but also on our economy, on our residents and their mental health, um, and on the very way that we, as human beings, socialize and interact with one another. Um, we, I, I think now in the post-pandemic era, uh, if I can use post-pandemic, because in many respects we're still in it, um, the city of Washington, D.C. has built greater capacity to be able to respond quicker than we did. There was a lot of ramp up in the beginning, particularly in the first 30 to 60 days. You'll recall tests, uh, masks, uh, ventilators, right? Just getting all of those things and, and developing mechanisms by which to centrally procure things, commodities, resources. And then we have a hundred, we had um, 100,000 ventilators. Where are we putting them? Uh, we had to lease a 50,000 square foot facility, which is still in, in uh, operation now, which has become the district's logistics center. Um, we are in the process of, of building a new emergency operations center uh, that could host the mayor and our executive incident management team for long periods of time. Um, so I think if we were to be um, confronted with another pandemic uh, on the scale of COVID, uh, we would um, we would be able to move a lot quicker than we did just because of the um, deep impact and cascading impacts of COVID, um, which I don't think any of us really appreciated at the time. I remember being in early meetings saying like, oh, this this will be like a flu. It'll be gone in like two or three months, right? We might just have to ramp up. You weren't the only months. person in Washington yeah, thinking right. that. Yeah, so um, I just think we'd have a better appreciation for that. And would you have the PPE and the ventilators available? We have a tomorrow? full, we, we, we have procured, uh, at the height of Omicron, we procured over 5 million test kits, and we have a population here of about 700,000 residents. Um, we use them now for, my children are in D.C. public schools, we, 
The public schools give them, give them out to children so that when they come home from extended breaks, uh, we can provide free tests. They could test negative for COVID and they can go in and be safe, uh, teachers um, and staff. So I think we have the infrastructure and the resources to be able to handle that. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Roy, um, one of the things that was caused a lot of concern was that governors were in large measures left to make their own decisions about particularly the clothing, closing of businesses. And as you well know, there were all kinds of, uh, maybe riots too strong word, but protests and some of them armed protests in capitals like in, in Pennsylvania and Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Virginia. Um, and, and governors were you know, roundly and soundly chastised for their decisions. No, nobody protests because you're being too careful. It's, um, I mean, because you're not being careful enough, I should say. Nobody comes to the Capitol and says, you know, you're not, you're not restricting our behavior enough. Um, in retrospect, is it fair to leave that and, and correct to leave that authority at the, in the governor's hands? I mean, obviously, a lot of people say DeSantis did it right. I'm not saying that he did or did not, um, but that he was, that Florida was in, in many ways, correct me if I'm wrong, Donna, but less restrictive than some of the aforementioned states. Um, and I think this, this governors felt at some point they were getting mixed messages from CDC. So in the next round, um, how can we better um, put governors in a better position where they're not um, you know, instigating these kinds of uh, responses or at least they have reliable um, basis, bases for making their decisions? Thank you for that question. Um, I, I think we saw both ends of the spectrum, right? So some saying you're not being restrictive enough and others saying you're being too restrictive. And I think it goes back to my point earlier on characterizing the biosecurity threat, right? So um, what happens in um, Ohio may not be happening in Arkansas, but giving governors the resources to be able to pivot quickly um, to respond to their populations that they know well, right? Um, I don't think Dr. Wiley would go into a pharmacy and tell the pharmacist how to run his shop and, and vice versa. Um, I, th I think we saw this across um, um, in other countries as well, Japan, for example, because they had the capabilities to characterize how um, COVID was being transmitted they were able to say, um, okay, we see it's in uh, large areas, crowded, ventilation, et cetera. So maybe we don't need to shut down schools. Maybe we don't need to shut down businesses if we implement these um, um, precautionary measures, et cetera. Um, I think giving governors um, the flexibility and the resources to coordinate at the local, state, and the federal level to be able to make the decisions that they need to make um, is important. Arkansas, for example, is a very rural state. We did not initially um, get hit as hard as some of the other larger states. It caught up, you know, like COVID did. Eventually, it, it made its way to us. Um, but having um, a broad blanket of... Um, recommendations or strategies, well, it does not work for every state. So again, figuring out some way to allow governors um, um, 
the capabilities to coordinate across. And I mentioned earlier, load bearing, um, balancing. So there was no mechanism um, for governors to share across state lines, across regions, whether we're talking about vaccines, whether we're talking about um, PPE, um, and if we're talking about therapeutics. A lot of those things that came down from the federal level that were allocated, what you got is what you got. Um, and uh, no sharing allowed. So there were very limited flexibilities, which I think caused a lot of hiccups. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wiley, I have a very specific question for you. One of our recommendations back in 2015 was that cities tier their hospitals and say, we think that this, this hospital has the greatest capacity or based on demographics, the greatest likelihood of being swamped first. And then to preposition uh, PPE and ventilators and things of that um, nature in those hospitals and then go, go down the, the line. You described something a little different, which was you had zones and then it sounded like what you said was that you had sort of a central clearinghouse or warehouse for this equipment where you could dispatch it to those hospitals as needed. You have a, a, a sense of which of those models is better or is it a merger of the two? So I, I read the uh, 2015 report and and, uh, and thought a lot about the tiered model. We did some tiering, but when you get into a pandemic of the scale of Omicron, December, January, and February, tiering actually doesn't work because you're using capacity at all levels, whether they're small hospitals or large hospitals. Treating COVID was not technically that difficult until you got to cardiopulmonary uh, bypass machines or ECMO machines, we were actually providing that type of support. Up to that point, proning patients and putting them on ventilators and having enough respiratory therapists and intensive care physicians to manage, and then helping those people manage even in the rural hospitals and not having every, everybody sent in centrally was actually the way that we did it. And in terms of load balancing, some of it was bigger load balancing, but a lot of it was the coordination of in the entire zone and meeting on a daily basis to see what the capacity was. Can you take one patient today or can you take two patients today? And just having that, whether it's a rural hospital or urban hospital in a large pandemic of the scale of Omicron, I think worked well. And, it's, and it was a little bit different from tiering in terms of the report. So it sounds like you would recommend that we amend that recommendation and perhaps um, suggest to uh, cities at least um, that they um, instead have a central depository for this kind of equipment so that they can deploy as needed. Is that yes. fair to say? Yes. Okay. Thank you. With flexible money so that you can move things around. Mm -hmm. um, Representative Brooks. Thank you. Start with you, Dr. Rodriguez. I'm curious um, when you talk about the burnout of the first responders um, and that they are still experiencing because of, of still so many challenges in our local communities. What, if anything, can the federal government do uh, relative to those issues? And do you think that training exercises now on lessons learned and so forth and funding, because I know doing training exercises takes real money to, uh, to do that type of training. Do you think that would be helpful? What are the things that the federal government can do to help those first responders right now? I think um, training is, is a good, is a good uh, option there um, in terms of 
uh, how our employees uh, operate under very stressful situations. Um, recall that with the pandemic, there were people who were coming into work who had relatives at home, small children who were now in full, um, uh, t uh, not to say telework, in full virtual school. Um, and so, but yet they still, still came in. Um, the mental health issues of uh, going into work every day and, and um, helping to build out all the capacity with the testing sites was exacerbated by, and, and I would suggest that the commission also look at this as a, as a secondary but not insignificant issue, um, is the impact of multiple emergencies um, and how they sort of, uh, multiple uh, emergencies happening at the same time. So recall at the height of the pandemic, in the spring and summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, we had we had uh, huge social uh, and, and race-based protests here in the city that then led into a very divisive presidential election and um, uh, months of, dis of disruption and unrest here in the nation's capital. So our people, while they were looking at and trying to um, flatten the curve, so to speak, in the pandemic, also had to respond to the social unrest that was occurring where literally parts of the city burned. Um, and, and so that has taken its toll. And I think there are some things that the federal government can do. Again, more uh, mental health awareness, more training for first responders. Um, but a lot of that I think will have to be borne by the local, uh, by local authorities. Um, we have tried to, to grapple with this issue um, by and the mayor has done this by giving um, some of our first responders, including my own agency, more days off, um, giving them comp time to spend time with their families, um, COVID bonuses. Uh, we've also really implemented um, pretty loose telework policies now as we've re-entered sort of a steady state operations for our agency, give people a lot of flexibility. Um, one of the things that the pandemic has showed us is that it's almost fundamentally rearranged the American workforce. Um, and, and we have to, if we're going to stay competitive in this employee, employee market, we have to adapt to that as well, uh, to keep the best and the brightest in our agency. So we've been very flexible with that. Um, we've, we, now that, um, travel and training have come back online, we're allowing our people to go to travel, to see their colleagues, to go to conferences, to take days out of the office. Um, so that they can also decompress. Um, so there are things, some things the federal government can do, but a lot of it, I think, is on agency directors, mayors, governors to set the tone um, as we come out of this. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Roy, with respect to the governors and what you talked about, uh, you, you talked about the three areas. What is probably the greatest area of need that you would see governors needing help from with the, the federal government uh, with respect to the response. I know there was so much uncertainty at the beginning, uh, and not just at the beginning. I mean, throughout uh, a lot of different um, signals that came from Washington, D.C., because there, it was such an unknown as to what COVID was and uh, do you mask, do you not mask, do you, do, we didn't have the right uh, testing equipment uh, or tests, diagnostic tests, not enough PPE. But at this point in time, 
Um, where would you say that the federal government, again, can help the states the most? Because the states really are governors and all of the mayors and all the local officials are really where the action happens. I just finished serving on our Governor Holcomb's Commission on Public Health, and we're, we've done a deep dive on trying to figure out how to bolster public health. Um, but what, what can the federal government do to help if you have a top list, top priority? Where would you put it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, do we have enough time uh, is the first question. And um, I've actually been reading that report, so thank you for your work um, on that. It's um, really good work. Um, I would say there are four areas um, that we have been working with states on um, in preparing for um, future public health um, response. That is funding. That's data modernization. That's public health workforce, and it is what does governance look like going forward. Um, I think you guys have seen um, all of our governors uh, implemented state of emergencies just to have flexibilities. Um, and uh, unfortunately, through legislative session at the state level, a lot of those emergencies um, have been stripped or watered down significantly. Um, and so we have been thinking through ways um, to... Um, bolster our systems. And so I would I would list those four things. Um, I don't think we have the answers yet because we're still in it, um, but we're thinking through what does a feedback loop look like, right? So as we were on the ground and in the thick of it, you're just going as fast as you can. And uh, I think Dr. Rodriguez mentioned this, like um, the, the flex, we're, we're not in the, we're, we're never gonna be the same. The, the mental health issues that we have now, the burnout that we have, um, et cetera. But how do we, um, within those buckets, support governors by either looking at um, frameworks on how that can be done. At, at NGA, we jokingly say we never tell them what to do. Uh, we give them a buffet of considerations, uh, bipartisan with an equity lens. These are things, if you cannot do A, then perhaps you can do B, right? Um, so within those four buckets, um, data modernization, funding, public health workforce, um, and um, governance. And while those are all things that were in the Indiana report, um, have the other states that you're working with, all of them in our territories, have they been doing those after actions as well and issuing reports that maybe our commission can uh, you know, get our hands on to see what what all of the states are requesting? Yes, we could pull some things um, together for you guys. Um, they are, and I think this goes back to like the, the levels of uh, preparedness and in, in how our public health systems work. Because every state has a different system and a mechanism on how they do it, none of it is looks the same, right? Um, but happy to pull um, that information together. Okay, thank you. I guess I would ask similarly, Dr. Wiley, of with respect to, say, the American Hospital Association or the Federation of Hospitals, have they done those reports as well? Just out of, if you know, um, you know, and, and have gathered the data and the insight from our hospital systems, which also, very much so, were the heroes on the front lines. Have they have they come together um, to gather that uh, information? Uh, I think the American Hospital Association has pulled uh, after action summary together, uh, a COVID and a review 
we're certainly uh, doing it on the state level uh, in Ohio, but I do think there is other things that could be done. So in licensing, we have a state compact, which I believe has 37 states in it. We send doctors to New York and to Detroit from the Cleveland Clinic and nurses as well um, to, because we were, we were not in a, in a high outbreak at that time and they were being overwhelmed. But it's, if we could get licensing across 50 states, we also need to think about using, and, and Representative Shalala brought up pharmacists, at the top of their license in every state. They can provide a great deal of medical care, but they're prohibited from doing so in a lot of states, moving to the top of their license. The other the, thing is looking at- The same at, thing with nurses. Yes. In terms of scope of practice. And then looking at other, what are, what are, your, what are your other buckets? So one other bucket was pharmacy, but there are, another, there are other buckets out there, like uh, uh, military medics. I've been told about 10,000 medics uh, leave the military every year, um, but they don't necessarily aren't qualified by with a, with a degree or some type of recognition that they can move into hospitals or outpatient areas to help provide care. So I think we need another source of caregivers as we're short, you know, thousands and thousands of nurses across the United States, and there doesn't seem to be a way to rectify that shortage with an aging population in general. So I, I do think there are things which could be done. The other one is supporting data and data analytics and uh, making sure that we have the, the geospatial analytics across every state to, to recognize early what's happening in the state and not wait for a hospital to, to, to uh, you know, throw up their hands and that we're overwhelmed that we have a problem. So early recognition and supporting that data analytics, I think, would be essential to moving forward. I just want to make sure, because there's a bit of uh, focus on um, quality and safety now in hospitals, and um, I'm, you know, I know that those frontline providers have been very focused on quality and safety throughout this pandemic, but it's a bit hard when there's not enough PPE and certainly not enough nurses. Um, and a massive nursing shortage right now. Can you uh, share with us whether or not your system and Ohio feel like uh, we have a, we're ready with PPE now and ready with um, all that you need for safety? I think we're ready with PPE. As you're probably aware, some of the safety indicators actually deteriorated during the pandemic in terms of central line infections and other things generally across hospital systems. We think that's due to uh, the number of people which uh, individual nurses were taking care of at the time and the stress that the system was under. I think that's improving now. Uh, but, uh, you know, since the uh, reports came out of, uh, of the problems within hospitals about hospital-acquired infections and those type of things, almost everybody's been working on it very hard. There's still a lot of work to be done. In terms of nurses, uh, we would hire uh, every nurse that we could get a hold of. So we're short. Uh, hundreds of nurses within the Cleveland Clinic. We're short thousands of nurses in the state of Ohio to be back to the par where we would like to be in terms of providing uh, optimal care. And once again, uh, we don't see enough nursing students coming out. So that's why I think we need to look at other buckets. Because that's going to be a massive concern for the future. I mean, we have a lot of people leaving the profession, particularly mm -hmm. after the burnout that we've heard about from first responders to the health professions. Yeah. And so is there anything specifically that you think the federal government uh, should be doing relative to the workforce shortage that is happening right now and in the future? I would think that, it, once again, uh, maximizing the effectiveness of uh, nurses and uh, pharmacists, and then thinking about those medics coming out of the military. 
Okay. So it takes a long time to get a nursing degree. Uh, you know, bachelor's is, uh, is four years. Um, and, uh, you know, can we train people to aid nurses uh, at a lower level and probably a lower cost to expand our, our capabilities? Thank you very much. And there was a shortage of clinical slots during COVID, too. So a lot of nurses didn't get their time, nursing students didn't get their time in because uh, many of the hospitals couldn't afford to have uh, baby nurses in there while they were trying to treat patients. So, and I should point out there are 30,000 nurses waiting for interviews from the State Department that actually have passed the exams and speak English and would like to come in. So there is a, there is a pipeline uh, there. Senator Daschle, I yield to you. Well, first of all, let me <clears throat> compliment our panel. This has really been an informative session, and I appreciate your answers. And some of the questions I had, you've already addressed. I, I, you mentioned, uh, Ms. Roy, the, the importance of public health. And I, as I look at our current circumstances, what has happened over the last couple of decades, especially with regard to our public health infrastructure, I'm very concerned about our capacity to address these challenges going forward with the demise of, of that infrastructure. It's not just a workforce shortage, it's, a, it's across the board with just about every aspect of public health under great stress today. Um, as you weigh public health as, as a factor in how we are prepared for the next pandemic, what recommendations would either any of the three of you have with regard to our public health infrastructure and what we should do about it? Why don't we just go down the, down the road, mm -hmm. Mr. Rodriguez, Dr. Rodriguez? Yeah, thank you, Senator. Um, you know, I, I think public health um, is one of the, here in the district, and I, and I think throughout the country, it's one of those capabilities and um, resources that uh, you only need it when you need it. Uh, right. and, and I think sometimes it's kind of viewed that way um, one of the one of the things that that I would suggest, and coming from again speaking on behalf of the National Emergency Managers Association, is that emergency managers and public health officials need to be in lockstep, um, because uh, emergency managers can help public health officials kind of look around the corner. What's the data you're getting? What is the because emergency managers are responsible for the coordination, resource management, consequence management. Um, fortunately, here in the district, we, we have that great relationship with our public health department. But I know from my colleagues across the country, sometimes during the, during the response to the pandemic, it was hard to get data. It was hard to uh, get in to talk to some of the healthcare systems um, and see kind of the challenges they were grappling with so that emergency management can marshal the resources of a state or a city to support that. Um, I, you know, in my view, public health and emergency management should be like police and fire. Um, those agencies really need to be linked, um, which brings me to a, a um, response to a question that Representative Brooks had. Um, and I know this might seem like if we're talking about big ideas and, and what can the federal government do and how can the federal government move forward, I have two suggestions. Um, the first, and many on the panel uh, have played a part in, a very significant part in this in days in the Congress is the role of fusion centers. Uh, bear with me for a second. Um, here in the District of Columbia, the fusion center sits with the emergency management agency. It sits within my agency, uh, not, in a, not in a police department or state police like it does in most states and big cities. Um, what that allows us to do when there's a less of a uh, focus on crime, uh, 
and law enforcement, we can actually take an all threats and all hazards approach. So our fusion center played a huge role in the response to the pandemic. How are we taking the resources that were built after 9-11? And I was, um, I, I recognize the importance of terror, counterterrorism. I was a CIA uh, analyst in the counterterrorism center uh, for 12 years after 9-11. Um, worked on Al-Qaeda and ISIS and AQI. Um, but the threat landscape has shifted. The U.S. and its allies have been largely successful at destroying that network. Um, what are the new threats that we face? And how can the, the institutions and apparatus that we built after 9-11 be shifted to meet the new model and the threats that we faced? Public health and biodefense is a huge threat that we face. So how are we taking the resources of the Department of Homeland Security, in particular, and FEMA, to, to shift that? Um, the second thing is, and I know our new president of NEMA is very committed to this, and we can get into more specifics later, but a rewriting of the Stafford Act. Looking at it again and saying, what are the things that need to be modified here to prepare the nation for the, the threats and hazards that it now faces? Um, and again, I'm not, an expert, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an expert in the Stafford Act, but I know it's something national mercy managers are looking at and will advocate for on the Hill. Thank you very much. Ms. Wright? Okay. Um, I would say looking at the public health system overall, so not just in response to um, um, viral outbreaks. So how do we build systems that make sure people are healthy and their well-being is at the, the forefront, not a system that's very reactionary. Um, our public health system is not tied to the hospital system. So if, if a patient is um, showing up, and I think Dr. Wiley mentioned this, in Arkansas we did the same thing and we saw this across states. Um, a lot of elective procedures um, were halted just to free up workforce and supplies to be able to respond to the pandemic. So now we have complications from patients missing checkups, children missing well child visits, when schools closed, now we are dealing with social emotional learning issues, we're in a mental health crisis right now, we're in a maternal and infant health crisis right now, all of these things were compounded by COVID-19. And I say they were compounded because the system was not built to respond to it. And um, those four buckets, again, how do we work? I think one of the things I struggle with um, and some of my colleagues, what does um, a system that responds quickly look like? How much oversight should the CDC or the federal government have? What are the roles of the governors? What are the roles of the health secretaries? What are the role of the emergency um, managers? How do we pull all of them um, together to be able to respond, not just to, um, like I said, uh, respiratory viruses, but um, a lot of patients and a lot of lives that were lost had um, multiple underlying conditions, diabetes and cancer and things of that nature. Um, in Arkansas, for a while, we weren't able to see um, down in, in the hospital level, if you will. The data system was not equipped, right? Um, and being at NGA now, I think 
we're seeing that across the board. So thinking through um, um, our capabilities for a comprehensive public health system where a governor in um, Louisiana can pick up the phone and call the governor in California and say, this is what we're seeing, this is what we're hearing, what do you need? Um, and right now we do not have that. Thank you. Dr. Wiley? Uh, I'll, I'll agree with some of those comments. Uh, certainly, the public health system needs to coordinate with the large health system providers because that's where the firepower and that's where the manpower is. So we're never going to have the same number of people in public health as we have in the rest of the healthcare delivery system. I think it's coordinating that and keeping that coordinated over time. And how do you keep that warm, ready for the next event? And that's what we're struggling with now. In Ohio, as we created this zone structure, which it works very well. We, we know what the federally qualified healthcare centers do. We know what the county and the city health departments do. They know our capabilities, we know theirs. But how do we keep that going when there's no pressure to keep it going right now? And where do we pay for those capabilities? And that's, that's a real issue. So to be ready to respond, not rebuild all this over another three to six months during the next pandemic when we have another large outbreak is, how do, we, how do we do that? But I do think it needs to be coordinated. It can't stand alone. We have a decentralized system uh, uh, in Ohio, not a centralized system. And we've seen some of the counties have significant capabilities and some have less capabilities. But when you're talking about uh, tracing and tracking patients, or about providing PPE, about where to send those public health providers, that's coordinated with the geospatial analytics and the data. So what we gave to the county and the city health department was, there's an outbreak here in this building. You need to send your people there to give them PPE at first and when testing became available to test and then later on to treat once we had treatment uh, availability and then vaccinate those people. Thank you for that. I, 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 one thing we haven't talked about and I'm just curious uh, because I think we're going to have to face challenges going forward in this context uh, in many more ways in the future, and that's misinformation, disinformation, and politicization of science as we address the challenges on the ground. How much did, did all of that encumber your effort? Was it consequential? Was it not much of a factor? And what, if any, recommendations would you have with regard to how we avoid that misinformation, disinformation, politicization challenge uh, in the future, is there anything we can do? <clears throat> I, you know, I guess I could start. Um, so, yes, it did have an impact uh, here in in DC, um, and our strategy was unfortunately we had uh, a, we have a very strong communicators in our mayor and in our health director. Um, most days, it was the three of us sitting at a table like this with the press talking about our response and talking about what we wanted residents to do. Well, what, how we tried to counter that was through aggressive public messaging, uh, near daily press conferences during the height of the pandemic, when the press would ask those types of questions, you know, someone saying this, what is, what is the truth behind this? And, and we just had to keep sort of messaging. And uh, for uh, several months, it was near daily press conferences, show data, very data-driven to, to the other panelists' uh, points and, and just constantly pushing down that misinformation and disinformation. Thank you. Sorry. I would say we have a public health communications problem. Um, we don't 
know, and I think COVID showed us how to talk about public health to people that are not public health practitioners, to people who are not clinicians, to people who don't do this daily, myself included. I can remember many a briefings where I'm like, what is a probable death? Like, how is that? Pro and, you know, how we can, so if people like us are confused about the information that we are getting, you leave the door open um, for bad actors to come in and um, spread false truths, if you will. This is something we've been thinking about at NGA, um, so much so that um, we have hired behavioral scientists to help us think through how do we communicate about public health um, um, measures. Um, we um, have been working across the board to figure out how do we talk about these things to rule um, individuals, to folks in urban areas, to people who are extremely conservative, to people who are extremely uh, liberal, to people who are somewhere in the middle because the messaging does not work for all of them. How do we get the information that is science-driven um, but in plain language, as we call it, uh, in a manner that people can understand it and in a matter where people feel like they have informed consent to make decisions for themselves and um, for their families. Uh, but most of all, make sure that our governors have um, the information that they need um, as well. And so I, I think that would be, if that's one of the things that drive home here is we have to rethink the way we talk about um, public health. Uh, a lot through the pandemic um, and even now we would get these thick, uh, briefs or reports um, from the CDC. Um, and sometimes we'd spend a lot of time, our health department, trying to translate it um, in a manner that people could um, understand. And so um, I, I'll, I'll pause there and turn it over to Dr. Wiley. Uh, I think the misinformation problem was consequential with uh, severe and significant consequences to the public for people who once they got in the hospital and were on a ventilator or about to be ventilated, wanting an immunization then, realizing that maybe they've made a mistake. Certainly, I think uh, in Ohio, Cleveland Clinic, as along with most other providers, tried to do public messaging as best we could. I'm not sure that the people who needed to hear the public messaging were listening to that platform. In some way, I think there needs to be oversight of what's being said. I don't know what, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Um, that's probably up to the federal government to, to figure out um, how do you how do you uh, keep truth and scientific facts available to people as a source of truth and trusted information. During the pandemic on an individual level as a doctor trying to convince his patients that they needed to get the immunization. Um, you know, I, you know, I've spent an hour talking to an individual patient. There's not enough doctors to spend an hour with each individual to go through that. Uh, I felt good once the patient finally agreed to get the immunization, but but that's that's too much effort for too little result. It's got to be it's got to be a, a more trusted situation than that. So, well, that's very well said, Dr. Wiley. Thank you. I think that I think it is one of the biggest challenges we're going to be facing, not only in in the case of a pandemic, but just across the board around vaccinations and public health, especially. But uh, thank you. This has just really been very very helpful. 
Um, on the communications issue, this is different, though. The pandemic was different than telling a parent they should get their kid a measles vaccine because the science kept changing and um, uh, we didn't explain to people that as we got more information, we may be changing whether you wear a mask, where you wear a mask, uh, when you get a vaccination, who should get a vaccination. And I think it was a very complicated it, it requires a very different kind of communication strategy than what we've had before in public health because, because the information was changing going along and that, that brought out some of the trust issues, um, it seemed to me. Um, uh, Ms. Roy, let me, um, because uh, Dr. Wiley brought it up, the scope of practice issue is essentially a state issue, that is, um, can a, a pharmacist uh, practice up to their training? Can a nurse or a physician's assistant uh, practice up to their training? And it differs from state to state. And by the way, it has nothing to do with red state or blue states. Uh, rural states happen to give a broader uh, scope of practice. And it has to do with the politics of the medical community and, and other kinds of things. Is the National Governors Conference, given our experience, going to take this issue on and try to get some kind of a standard uh, philosophy about this, uh, pushing uh, the states to expand their workforce and the role of their workforce um, by getting far more flexible. Um, I mean, all these states regulate what a nursing student has to learn, but they don't necessarily give them permission then to practice up until that. Could you respond to that? Because Dr. Wiley is really talking about broadening the workforce. Part of that is scope of practice. I, I and I, I agree with that. Um, we work closely with um, um, the the pharmacy association and national chain of um, pharm drug stores and things of that nature. Um, like I mentioned earlier, NGA has many different buckets um, of program areas, and one of that, um, my colleague. Um, works on our healthcare workforce. And so this is in conjunction with some um, federal partners, I think HRSA being one of them, but looking at um, how do we uh, grow the workforce without pulling from other areas? Because we have to think these folks are all coming from one pot, that pipeline. We're all going to be fighting at some point to, to um, pull them over to our side. But thinking through what does, does scope of practice look like? Um, I think at one point, those some of those laws were very important. It was to protect the public. Now I think we lean a little bit towards um, we are protecting industry. And so what does um, looking at scope of practice and the rules um, that have been promulgated in each state to address that? Um, the other thing we are seeing some states, um, um, these reciprocity laws, right? Um, so we have a little town called Texarkana, Arkansas, but there's also a Texarkana, Texas. And so if you live in Texarkana, Arkansas and practice there, are you able to do the same thing for maybe a patient in Texarkana, Texas? And so we've seen some states do that with veteran populations as well, remove some of um, the red tape and how they practice. We um, have seen this in telehealth um, as well, the provisions under um, the, the public health emergency that allowed practitioners to um, um, 
use telehealth services to provide services to individuals that may not uh, reside in their state. So to answer your question, this is something we are thinking about closely in providing resources to our members. Um, I don't, uh, I think we've run out of time. Um, I wanted to give the ex officios a chance to ask a question, but I guess we've run out of time. I can't thank you enough on behalf of our entire panel. This has been more than informative. We've been very well educated uh, by all of you, and thank you um, for your participation. Thank you. Thank you.
the nation and spoke those immortal words. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It could have been written off as an impossible challenge doomed to fail. Instead, it galvanized the country and brought us together for the benefit of all of humankind. Today, we're faced with our own seemingly impossible challenge, stopping pandemics before they can ever take hold again. And just like the race to the moon, it will take our best and brightest to reach our final destination. But more importantly, it will take all of us coming together once again for the common good. Each of us are experiencing firsthand the devastating effects of pandemics, and it's becoming painfully obvious that we must put an end to them once and for all. But within all the turmoil and grief, there is hope. We developed a vaccine in less than a year, pushing technology and innovation beyond what was thought possible and new treatments and medications have been created. Yet while we stemmed the tide and averted an even greater catastrophe, we might not be so lucky next time. Whether natural, accidental, or deliberate, infectious disease threats are increasing in frequency and severity. It's that very reason why we must act now. Fortunately, there are those who have already answered the call and joined forces to form the Apollo Program for Biodefense. Our nation has a history of accomplishing amazing things when we put our minds to it. From a system of highways that connected the country to a global positioning system that helps us find our way. We have always been able to achieve what's never been done before, particularly when we take on technological challenges. But this challenge will take sustained bipartisan support and U.S. leadership to develop new technologies needed to prevent biological events. Both public and private sectors must work together, with private sector providing research, insights, manufacturing, and efficiency while the government provides structure, oversight, and incentives for innovation. And since this problem is a threat to all, we will work with other countries in a U.S.-led initiative, strengthening our international relationships while making everyone safe from pandemics. The Apollo program for biodefense will not focus on a singular track, but rather multiple groundbreaking solutions. We'll create a world where new pathogens are detected and continually traced from the source where we can distribute rapid point-of-person tests to every household in the country within days of detection, where effective treatments are already in hand, and vaccine development and rollout occur in weeks rather than years. We'll advance other areas of science across the whole spectrum of STEM as well, inspiring the next generation of scientists, bioengineers, entrepreneurs, and public servants. We're closer to ending pandemics today than you might think, but we're at a turning point. It's time to harness America's ingenuity, optimism, and grit to achieve resilience against biological threats. Anything less could have dire consequences. Living through this pandemic has created momentum to produce technologies that we had lacked the will and resources to pursue before. We have to build on that progress and push for greater advances that will protect us from the next infectious disease threat. We envision a time when people will look back and wonder how we ever let infectious diseases wreak havoc on our society. How we ever tolerated seasonal flu, let alone viruses like COVID-19. This noble and extraordinary mission can be fully realized by the end of this decade, but only with leadership, resources, and interests that go beyond technical constraints and the usual cycle of panic and neglect. The time is now. Please join our cause today so that all of us can be protected.
and the world can be safer for all the tomorrows to come. Senator Lieberman and Governor Ridge testified before this very committee in 2015 when our commission released its first report and national blueprint on biodefense. They warned that the biological threat to the nation was rising and they informed this committee uh, that the nation was insufficiently prepared to handle a large-scale biological event. Sadly, COVID-19 emerged and proved our point. Check one, two. A little over six years after Testing. the hearing, I come before you today to warn you that, again, while COVID-19 dominates our national and global attention, the biological threat continues to increase. The commission says COVID has potentially opened up the U.S. Check one, two. To vulnerability to other countries looking to Check cause one, two. by using biological agents. From the toll on, on lives and health to the economic devastation it's caused. The cost Check one, of the DNA to assemble the 1918 influenza virus is now under $1,000. By my estimate, 30,000 people can assemble an influenza virus. Our job is to keep plant pests, foreign animal diseases from devastating our economy. Senator, you're from Connecticut, you have Asian longhorn beetle up there, scourged of the Northeast. The only way to get rid of this darn thing is to basically chip a tree that's twice as old as I am, three times as old as I am. Thing comes out with a hole bigger than your finger. How did it get in? What pack material got through the gauntlet? What did we do in response to that? Because that thing came in in 1990. And we can no longer solely defend against specific threats. Threat agents can be near, nearly limitless. Engineered bioweapons can evade medical and physical defenses, increase lethality and contagiousness, and enhance stability, making them easier to use more so than ever. Last year, the State Department released a report in which it stated clearly and unequivocally that Russia and North Korea now possess active biological weapons programs with China and Iran not far behind. We must assume that our enemies, both nation states and terrorists, are paying attention to the vulnerabilities revealed during COVID-19 and that we must prepare for an attack on the U.S. homeland with biological weapons. What the Russians have done in Ukraine, and we have Putin in the position that President Biden very aptly described yesterday as being sort of cornered, being desperate. And we have a man who, you know, has done what contradicts, you know, decades of civilized society and actually threaten the use of nuclear weapons. And a man like that who's desperate, who's already threatening nuclear weapons, which is unthinkable, uh, hard to see how he'd hesitate to use biological weapons. It's not if, but when. The Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense argues that if the United States acts now, the program could effectively end the era of pandemic threats by 2030. Can you just explain what the commission means by this, as we know that we have to live with pandemics and as we are right now? Well, there are some things that are inevitable. There will be the spread of viruses from animals, bats, and, and, and uh, birds, and other species. And that's because humans continue to encroach on their habitat. Um, but we, what we can do is be prepared so that as soon as those uh, viruses are detected, that uh, they can be genetically screened by, uh, with, uh, by any country in the world. We want to build that capacity so we can quickly identify what kind of virus is this. So we can then um, employ the amazing uh, abilities of the global biotechnology capacity to develop a vaccine and develop therapeutics against it very quickly. Uh, outbreaks um, may be inevitable 
pandemics or not, and, and I want to repeat that because that is a, a view that the commission shares and holds very deeply. I don't usually call out particular companies, but I'm so impressed with Moderna um, that it could develop in its first batch of vaccine, its first batch of vaccines for clinical trials, just 25 days after obtaining the sequence of the virus and dosed the first trial participant just 38 days later. That was remarkably successful, but the nation needs broader, preemptive, and sustained public-private efforts to better protect against future biological threats. To succeed, we need to think big. Well, earlier this year, we released the Athena Agenda, which was specific recommendations on how to actually achieve those uh, 15 technology priorities that were laid out in the Apollo report. We need to have that in place, and that requires research funding, it requires the coordination of government agencies, um, and it ha ha requires having a plan to execute on, right? U.S. biopreparedness, as the chairman said, is fractionated, multifaceted, and distributed across all levels of government and much of the private sector. All 15 cabinet departments, eight independent agencies, and one independent institution are responsible for biodefense. We have to solve the federalism issues. It's not only who does what in the federal government, but who does what in government in general. Uh, and we've struggled with that. What do we expect the states to do? What do we expect the local governments to do? And how do we properly, without being so uptight, integrate the private sector and make investments um, in that sector to get the results that we want? So it's a complicated role. Government is not necessarily uh, designed uh, to do this kind of thing, but the only way we're going to save lives around the world in the future is by anticipating the future and putting together an integrated strategy, and that's what the Apollo program uh, represents. Over many years, this commission has helped make our nation safer and our world safer from infectious diseases and biological threats. I'm truly grateful for your leadership and my role in support of President Biden and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, is really to work with my team to at the National Security Council to coordinate efforts across government to prepare for and respond to pandemics and biological threats. You just needed a suite of cost-effective tech solutions that decreased biodetection threat timing, resolved issues with false positives, and built a capability to analyze relevant biodetection data. We should make pandemic preparedness a permanent initiative within the Department of Energy. To truly advance innovation through partnerships, we must cultivate meaningful partnerships representing a diversity of disciplines, people, and sectors. All the people that have experienced so much loss due to these other diseases, hepatitis and typhoid and cholera and um, smallpox back in the day, monkeypox now. Look, the emotional reaction throughout this country. Check point two. When Check. 
Check. We read in the papers that polio virus has yeah. been discovered back in New York. People are flipping out all, all over the place. Check. Polio. Check one, two. Here, you know. Two, two, two. So I, I think that has to be harnessed two. somehow <laughs> connected with this program. Because if Check. it is, I Check. think it would move forward. Check one, two. The first piece is getting good data of where all the, in, having your eyes two. on the ground of where everything is, Testing. how spread is happening, what kind of resources are there, Check. where can the national stockpile be best utilized, um, understanding the dynamics of what the Check outbreak is or what Testing. biological threat is that you're dealing Check with. One, A real effort on the part of leadership across the board at all levels to make it more of a priority than it is today. Check one, two. The two. importance of exercising, tabletops, exercising, and so forth. These investments are too important uh, to be put on the Check back burner. We just saw that uh, recently with COVID, uh, when the investments that we had made a decade or more earlier uh, in bio uh, with NIH uh, down in Check Texas, one, two. it actually led to the start of the RMA vaccine and you know, brought that, brought, help bring that home and jump-started. So Check. that uh, really long-term thinking is the key. The White House has a new plan to prevent future biological threats and be better prepared for future pandemics. The co-chair of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, former Senator Joe Lieberman, is here now to discuss what this means for Americans. Though we had the scientific ability, we never invested uh, money uh, to to get ready to have the vaccines that could protect people's lives and health from a virus. The model that I'm talking about is threefold. Key research gaps when you're looking at potential viruses, always pushing the envelope at the level of research, accelerating the development of products by collaboration with our industrial partners and doing it at an international level and then coordinate closely with other U.S. government and non-government partners. Biotech and medical diagnostics, digital health, uh, computational biology, immunology, and all of these fields, I mean, it's quite unprecedented. It's moving at a, at a, at a fast clip right now in terms of development. Um, and what's exciting is that this is enabling um, the possibility of developing entirely new types of medical countermeasures, entirely new types of capabilities, um, for not only to prepare for future uh, pandemic threats and other health security threats, but really to be in a position to potentially prevent them from ever happening. Commercial space has economics. There's the economics of commercial space, and that's what's made it to really work right now. The challenge we run into is what are the economics of biodefense? And a big piece of this is resilience in advanced manufacturing. So thinking about how we can scale up in the time of need. So that, that, that charges us, I think, with the responsibility in Congress to be prepared not just from a public health perspective, but also from you know, broader biodefense, biosecurity perspective as well. This is a time when we, we, we cannot relax. We can't be complacent. We have to work together in a bipartisan way across disciplines and across sectors and across borders. The money for this is coming from people. It is coming in this country. It's coming from, from our citizenry, right? The people who pay taxes. Yep. Uh, there has to be a level of accountability sure. back to the citizenry. 
And um, it's accountability of the entire government and the private sector, everybody together working on something like this. And the adoption of the technology, the public health components of it, understanding the socioeconomic side of things, the equity pieces, the communication pieces, all of that clearly needs to be better for the next time around. We experience and then we forget. I, uh, I've seen too many of those occasions over the years. And that's really what this biodefense strategy is all about to recognize that we can't forget, that we've got to be prepared. We know there's an there's an inevitability to either a, a, another pandemic or a terrorist attack, and we're not ready. We, we need the resources, we need the commitment, we need the plan. And that's really what this biodefense strategy is all about. When we get COVID in the rearview mirror, if we forget about this, then, you know, my grandchild sometimes is going to be in front of a similar committee saying, why didn't we learn the lessons of the past.
the ball and letting us sure. have you guys around. No <laughs> so I just wanted to tell you that this is only meant to be confined to the day after the break. Once you get down beyond 10, other kids count the faces, nothing will happen here, okay? It won't buzz, it won't ring or anything. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. Great to be well, here. I understand you've got a new position. Well, I'm retired, so it's very new. Okay. Oh, <laughs> or not, not recently, but I uh, left uh, government about two years ago. Yes, okay. But did you just pick up something else that I read? Well, I, um, I'm doing a few little things here and there. I'm That's working at the VA. Okay. I, uh, I was a poll worker on Tuesday. Oh, good. So, <laughs> so it's a portfolio. That's right. Hi, Susan Brooks. Yeah, we, we could work together a little bit, and I jumped in. Okay. 
Thanks. Oh, thank you. Here we go. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for your patience. We're a little late. The uh, schedules. For, first, let me thank uh, uh, Secretary Shalala for presiding in my absence. And I thank my colleagues uh, for welcoming me back to the chair. I know it was a close vote as to whether they wanted me to reassume. It was. So I thank Senator Daschle for his longtime loyalty. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the next panel was supposed to be uh, Congressman Langevin and Congressman Upton. They've been held on the Hill. So, uh, uh, and Congressman Upton has to uh, go home to his home state. Uh, but uh, Jim Langevin will uh, hopefully be here at three. So if I can get this. So they, the, the third panel of the day, Dr. Red and Dr. Lassant, uh have been kind enough, they were here early, to come on early, which we appreciated a lot. The, the, the panel in between with Bob Cadillac and others, uh, Dr. McClellan will come on after this, about two or so. And then Jim Langevin hopefully will be here sometime after three. So um, uh, this panel is on recovery and uh, mitigation. Have you tossed the coin as to who wants to go first? Okay. Good okay, that was good. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Red is a former deputy director for uh, the Public Health Service and Implementation Science and former director for the Center for Preparedness and Response at CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, he was very involved in the HHS response to COVID-19 and um, I know we'll be able to uh, speak to that experience. He brings really a wealth of experience uh, to us. Uh, so uh, perhaps we'll invite you to go forward, and then I'll have the honor of introducing Dr. Lausanne. Am I saying your name right? Lausanne. Lausanne. Yeah, let's not be uh, uh, nuanced about it. You are a saint <laughs> for what you do. Okay. Dr. Red, please proceed. Thank you, Senator. It is, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, with you again um, to speak about next steps in improving the country's biodefense. Today, I will use my time to give you my views on the three highest priorities for this period. Um, hopefully, we're getting near the end of the COVID pandemic and the work that we'll need to do between that point and the time of the next uh, health emergency. I will not duplicate the priorities that have been communicated in, uh, in plans and strategies that have been published. I hope that I will um, highlight gaps in those, uh, in those plans uh, from my, my perspective. Um, I spent my entire career at CDC, the last 15 years of which were in pandemic planning and emergency response. Um, today I'm not representing CDC, so everything I say is really my own opinion. Um, but it will be, of course, influenced by that experience, um, including the last two years where I've not been in government. And I have to say, I do have a different view after those two years. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> just to dive in, um, priority number one, we need to build public support for biodefense. I believe that a public campaign is required to build that, um, to build that public support. Number two, there's been some discussion of this uh, already today, but I believe we need to change the way state 
governments interact with the federal government uh, during a health emergency. And number three, we need to seek and assure that input from outside experts and members of the public are included in our, um, in our response, that that information needs to be included in how we respond. So let me, let me walk through those, um, those priorities. Every, um, everything that's been written uh, about being better prepared uh, tells us that the boom and bust cycle of health emergency funding has to end. And I would submit that the main problem here is that, the, that biodefense just doesn't rate very highly as a concern for, uh, for the American public. Uh, lots of funding and leadership and attention is granted to the public health during a crisis, and then cases fall, public interest wanes, leadership, attention fades, and funding ebbs. Um, a recent poll about issues that voters rated as very important before the 2022 election uh, rated coronavirus as number 18. Uh, that was a priority for 2% of the population. <clears throat> So the point is that without public support, this boom and bust cycle is inevitable. I think the committee is doing great work, but the, and it really is an important issue, but it's just not getting traction without that public support. <clears throat> I think a major campaign um, is needed. This will be uh, challenging with the political divides in the country and a fragmented communication landscape. Uh, but there are examples from the past, and let me just provide two. Um, after World War II, uh, the Marshall Plan was proposed. It was a period when people were really worn out from the sacrifices of World War II. But um, political leaders uh, persuaded the American public that U.S. financial support to Europe would provide a direct domestic benefit. Um, more recently, in 2005 and 2006, Secretary Levitt traveled the country, met with, uh, I think, every governor. Um, to persuade them and the public <clears throat> to participate in efforts to uh, prepare the country for an influenza pandemic. Issue number two, we need to change the way states and the federal government interact with during a health emergency. I think if there's one thing that we take away from COVID, it's that um, when state leaders and federal leaders disagree, uh, it leads to confusion. Uh, our current response structure somewhat resembles the Department of War in the 19th century. State militias were the background of national defense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we need the same kind of evolution in our um, uh, domestic health response capacity that, um, un that U.S. military underwent in the 20th century. Uh, I think it's easy to see this problem in the way that we collect and share health data, but I think it extends much beyond that. Um, confusing and contradictory messaging, different intervention approaches coming from state and federal leaders has impeded a successful COVID response. And in particular, these conflicts eroded trust in, uh, that the public might have had in, um, in the advice and judgment of experts. I'm not sure what this would look like, but um, this piecemeal approach is, just has to change. Uh, number three, Decision makers need public input and expert advice from outside of government. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is a great example of a structure that provides transparent advice to, um, to, to government. It's, it's narrowly focused. I think a similar structure is needed for the other interventions that are undertaken to really weigh 
the, um, the, this interface between science and public policy. <clears throat> Similarly, a lot of work needs to be focused on understanding what members of the public uh, think and believe about the interventions that are taking place. Um, in the H1N1 pandemic, we uh, convened a series of decision briefings, basically identifying decisions that are recommendations that we would be making <clears throat> and listing what the elements of that decision would be. And every one of those had, what does the public think about this? And we really were left guessing what, what acceptance there would have, what kind of opposition there would have. I think we need a much more vigorous uh, ability to understand what people who in large measure will be uh, implementing the responses, either getting a vaccine or staying home. We need to really understand what the uh, intensity and range of feelings are uh, in that area. Um, with that, I will close and uh, look forward to, uh, to answering any questions that you have about these issues or any others. Uh, thanks very much, Dr. Ed. It was very uh, thoughtful. I'm sure we'll have uh, a lot of questions for you. Uh, Dr. Lewis Saint, uh, thanks for being here. This is actually your third appearance before the commission. You are a recidivist. <laughs> I just can't stay away. <laughs> much to our uh, much to our benefit uh, now, uh, coming before us, a distinguished career, many different positions. Now, senior vice president for policy and strategic planning at the Healthcare Distribution Alliance, which is a national organization representing primary pharmaceutical distributors. Uh, we're, we're very grateful you're here, and uh, we look forward to hearing you now. First off, thank you so much for having me again. Um, very nice to be with you all, and I appreciate the opportunity to share the perspective um, from the COVID response, from the perspective of the supply chain, recognizing that um, in all of my time working um, first as a clinical pharmacologist and later in as an emergency responder working on supply chain, I've never seen supply chain in the news um, and just in conversation. So um, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to really have a conversation about what did and didn't work in the supply chain and what we see as the opportunities moving forward. As Senator Lieberman mentioned, I am with the Healthcare Distribution Alliance. Um, we represent the nation's primary pharmaceutical wholesale distributors. Distributors connect about 1,400 manufacturers to about 200,000 healthcare facilities every single day, moving about 10 million medical products on a daily basis to ensure continuity of care. I bring that up because I think that's the basis when we're thinking about our ability to respond to events the basis of our response capabilities should be the capabilities that we leverage every single day. For the perspective of the supply chain, um, while supply chain is in conversation daily and on the news, supply chain resilience has been a conversation within the supply chain for decades. Operational resilience, usually being the term, or enterprise resilience being the term that's preferred within the supply chain, has been a critical component of the understanding the continuity of care question. Whether it's a regional event, whether that event is a flooding event in um, overflowing in the Mississippi River, or a potential disease outbreak in some part of Asia, understanding the globalized nature of the supply chain, its ability to pivot, its ability to also understand demand and fluctuate so that there are minimal disruptions has been a critical piece of what the supply chain continues to do. 
So at the top of the pandemic, um, there were a number of um, examinations of what the supply chain did and didn't get right. Um, HDA's Research Foundation authored a report um, that I think is incredibly important to this conversation. It's called The First 90 Days. And it specifically examined the performance of the pharmaceutical supply chain within the first 90 days of the pandemic, recognizing that those 90 days were so critical in part because we saw differing perspectives from the federal and state governments. We saw strain on the supply chain that was both because of an evolving understanding of how to treat COVID, but also demand that was artificial, that was reflective of panic and frankly exacerbated inequities. So I was asked a few questions coming here. Um, I was asked about, um, first off, what the supply chain did during COVID and what those lessons were. Um, I think it's really important to note that the supply chain played a really critical role as a partner in the um, administration of the COVID vaccines and therapeutics through their role in distribution. Um, and those are examples of the types of capabilities that the supply chain has and should be leveraged. The types of partnerships that allowed for the supply chain control tower, for example, that is managed by HHS. Um, that supply chain control tower is in partnership with some of the largest pharmaceutical distributors that are in the country. And they are inputting information into that on a recurring basis. Um, at the top of the pandemic, when the tower was stood up, it was almost daily. Now I believe it's gone to a less frequent and less burdensome cadence. Um, but that tower served a really important opportunity to create a picture of what was available, where those products lie, and created an opportunity for a partnership with the federal government to determine how best to allocate those products. Those are the types of partnerships that we think have a sustaining opportunity to help us to better understand the capabilities that exist, but we do have to do better on the demand picture side. So we often talk about what supplies we have, but we don't do enough to really understand what is true demand and how we can get a better sense of the true demand so that we are putting those supplies in the places where the demand is. And to us, that is a huge role for the federal government to be able to serve as that aggregator, to serve as that partner. If the data is coming in in these moments of crisis that's giving a supply picture, how incredible would it then be to be able to have a clear picture on the demand so that in partnership with the federal government, there can be decisions made about how to use resources. To um, Dr. Red's um, comments on the boom and bust cycle, that is something else that is incredibly important to um, the supply chain. When we think about how the supply chain is recovering from COVID, um, it, it, that is a very difficult question for me to answer, recognizing that there really is no such thing as recovery from COVID in the world that we're in right now. Um, there is RSV, there is a flu season, there, there are a range of strains related to continuity of care for non-communicable diseases. So what we're seeing is that the supply chain is continually being asked to pivot but what the federal investment, as it relates to what the long-term pandemic preparedness investments will be, remains unclear. And so as the supply chain is being asked through executive orders and other actions to make investments in resilience, it's not clear what the role of the federal government will be 
as a partner in those strategies, it's also not clear whether or not those investments will be long lasting. So that boom and bust cycle has a very real consequence for the private sector, knowing that these investments have to make good business sense and they have to be capabilities that they can use day in and day out. And so when we are seeing that boom and bust cycle, what that means is that the private sector is often unclear on how exactly to come to the table and what investments they need to make in their own resilience for these catastrophic events based on whether or not they will be called on to take those actions by the federal government in moment of crisis. I'll just end with um, a few points related to kind of what we see as the road ahead. We've developed a few principles that we think um, really help us to center supply chain resilience, um, not just around, um, and for our vantage point, not just around catastrophic events, but also continuity of care. Again, recognizing that that business case for resilience has to make sense day in and day out. The first really being around utilizing private sector and industry experts in the policymaking process. That is something that is still very difficult to attain. Um, as I mentioned, the supply chain control tower and many of our partners in the supply chain will tell you that they basically seconded staff from their own companies into that team to make sure that not only were they handing over data, but they had to teach people how to use it. So making sure that that capability can really be leveraged and that that know-how is not lost with staff rotation is very important. Secondly, properly utilizing private sector networks, infrastructure, um, and expertise to reinforce the public sector capabilities. I think there should be some hard questions asked about what we've asked of our public health departments, especially at the state and local level, and whether or not there may be partnerships that allow for the private sector to support the work of public health, allowing public health to remain in charge, but also with the support of the private sector. Um, we see a lot of um, questions related to um, the supply chain and the connection between the supply chain and public health. We really should do more to clearly identify what we see as the relationships between the two and what we expect to be the sustained investment to support that. And then finally, workforce. Um, we saw concerns of a rail strike um, just last week. There have been um, a lot of conversations about attrition with the healthcare workforce. We're seeing pharmacists leave um, in droves. That is something that's going to impact the resilience of the supply chain, and we're simply not doing enough to ensure that both STEM and non-STEM parts of the workforce are not just being trained, but also being retained at a level that will allow for continuity. And with that, I thank you for your time and look forward to your questions. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> thanks. Uh, <clears throat> thanks uh, very much, Doctor. That was uh, that was really a re uh, refreshing perspective, and uh, uh, it's true we're we're, uh, we're using the term supply chain an awful lot, um, but we're not, it's not clear what it always means to us. So thank you for that. So um, I'll, I'll begin, uh, Dr. Red. Uh, I was uh, really interested in the uh, the, the comparison you used to the uh, Secretary of War during the last century, when it was dealing with um, powerful state militias. So it's a good comparison to the uh, current state of uh, public health administration. But what's the answer? I mean, there. It became, of course, the 
I mean, we still have a, a state na a national guard, but really the the uh, the Secretary of War became the Secretary of Defense, and uh, what a much greater um, concentration of power in the federal government. Is that what we should do with regard to public health generally, and certainly public health emergency responses? I think <clears throat> so. I, let me admit that I don't have the answer to that to that question. I think that there are some options that ought to be considered, and I think this would be a uh, a very it's a very substantial change in the way that we would we do things now. Um, I think that there is a, a model where early on that the federal government does have more authority than it has, you know, day to day. Uh, I think there's another possibility of having something maybe similar to the National Guard where there are uh, public health people deployed to states that could then be, uh, could be activated as a national resource. Um, and there are probably some other choices as well. I, I think at, at some point after the beginning of an emergency, um, you do need to um, devolve decision-making to more local authorities. I, th I think what you need to be able to do that is high-quality data and some guidance on how to interpret those data. This is actually something that uh, was attempted in May of 2020. There was a guidance document that was, that was drafted and it was held up in clearance at high levels in the White House and wasn't available to governors to, uh, to use to make decisions about when to reopen. Uh, the quality of data needed to be better than it was, but I think those two things at a point after the initial onslaught, um, devolving decision-making uh, to, to local authorities is, is right. the right course. And there's got to be, obviously, um, flexibility because rural Texas is not the same as New York City. And if you have one national yeah. policy, that's going to be wrong. So it is different, I guess, from certainly from the uh, Defense Department comparison when it comes to foreign military, although maybe not with regard to homeland security type well, I don't, actually, I don't know what the plans would be if the U.S. was actually attacked by an army. Yeah. I think that might not be that different. I mean, maybe we'd need Probably the same not. kind of plan. No, I think you're right. Um, okay, that was interesting. Uh, Dr. Lucent, I was interested in the part of your testimony where, where you said, um, I thought convincingly, how do, you, how do the uh, distributors know uh, what the true demand is and where it's greatest, and that, um, if I heard you right, federal government really is uniquely positioned, or certainly better positioned, in a public health emergency to uh, know that and to share it with, for instance, in your case, distributors of uh, pharmaceutical and other um, uh, services and, and, and uh, assets. So how, how do you envision that might happen? Thank you for the question. Um, at the um, third month of the pandemic, um, there was a point where FEMA set up a um, prioritization cell. And what that prioritization cell was tasked with doing was working with the CDC, working with state and local governments to get a sense of case counts. And at that point, those case counts included total number of known cases, number of hospitalizations, and number of ICU cases. All the private sector got were zip codes, but all of the private sector supply chain got the same zip codes. 
Mm -hmm. And so what that allowed was an understanding of how allocation of product could be done when everyone is playing from the same sheet of music. And to us, that was incredibly powerful because what that allowed was conversation across the supply chain to say, okay, in these zip codes, here are the health systems that are going to be supporting these zip codes. Okay, we are going to send X, this another group is going to send Y, and that type of allocation allowed for the, the systems that had the known cases to receive what they needed. Without that, everyone's going off of individual relationships and ordering patterns. And that is doable, but in a public health emergency, when we need to make sure that we're taking scarce resources and allocating them most effectively, right. we think it's really important for there to be this, this same sheet of music. And so from our vantage point, having a, um, a concerted partnership between federal emergency management and federal public health to agree on what those measures should be and share that with the private sector mm -hmm. is an effective way to do that. Okay, that's, <clears throat> that's a good uh, constructive suggestion. I have one last quick question, which is slightly off the topic, but not too much. And if you don't have the answer now, I'm happy to uh, have you submit it later. Just thinking about uh, the numbers or, that you described earlier on, about 200,000 pharmacies that the distributors supply, the person in between. Do you have any idea what percentage of vaccinations occurred at, uh, at, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic occurred at pharmacies? At pharmacies? I don't know the exact number offhand. I know that it is greater than 50%. It is. That's I, interesting. I do know that that number also shifted as we moved out of the initial phases of vaccination, uh -huh. but I can get that number to you. Yeah, I'm curious. So the other places would be doctors' offices, hospitals, so, um, et cetera. Doctors' offices only recently. Yeah. Um, the the FEMA um, manned vaccination administration sites that were supporting uh, supporting local public health right. at the beginning of the pandemic played a huge role as well. Right. Um, as those vaccination sites were stood down, more and more was pushed to the pharmacy. And there are many um, local public health departments that still have their own vaccination clinics as well. So we're seeing clinics, the vaccination clinics from public health and pharmacies. Yeah. So uh, the pharmacists are certainly, and pharmacies mm -hmm. are certainly playing a different role than they did when I was growing up. Yes. We went to the pharmacy to get prescription drugs or whatever else was selling there. And we went to the doctor to get the mm -hmm. uh, injections, yes. right? So, uh, okay, thank you. Senator Dashiell? Well, thank you both for your excellent presentations. Yeah. Dr. Red, I, I particularly uh, found your three priorities to be right on the mark. I, I couldn't agree more emphatically. I'd like to focus on the second one in particular, and that is how we delineate the responsibilities for coordination between the federal and the state governments, and how do we do it in a more uh, effective way. It seems to me as we look back over lessons and, and, and draw lessons learned from our experience of the last three years, there just really wasn't a clear strategy around that coordinated role. And I think we paid a high price for it. But are there some recommendations you'd have with regard to guidelines for that uh, 
that uh, delineation of authority and responsibility for coordination? Uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult issue, and I think that there needs to be some, um, you know, this maybe would be an area where exercises could help, and particularly at the executive level, that, that health departments exercise all the time and are pretty comfortable giving guidance. Health departments maybe don't always follow it exactly, but at a higher level, there's not the same experience for, um, uh, for a health emergency like a pandemic. I think there's actually um, the model of the Stafford Act, I think, actually works pretty well for, the, for natural disasters. And that might be a, a starting point to try to figure out how, um, how governors can get assistance, give up some authority, um, not complete, and still be responsible. So I think something that could be longer lasting and maybe agreed upon mutually between governors and the federal government in terms of the ongoing support. Um, but you know, I think probably the most important thing is to, is to really try to address this in a comprehensive way with different options and try to identify what the, is it, is it legislative? Is it something that can be done in the way that, um, that FEMA's organized without legislation? I think there are a lot of different, uh, different ideas that are possibilities. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Lusain, I, I, uh, <clears throat> I'm fascinated by the whole supply chain challenge we faced and I, there are two factors that I'd really be interested in your your guidance and observation uh, on and that is how how critical is it that we create more of a domestic supply chain and to what extent should that be a priority in public policy mm -hmm. and then secondly I know multi-year funding for so many different aspects around healthcare especially drug development is so critical but is a multi-year funding guarantee something that would advance our supply chain challenges as well? Could you address those two aspects of supply chain? Sure. Thank you, Senator Taschel. Um, so on the question of um, creating a domestic supply chain, um, my, my view is that a diversified supply chain continues to be our strongest asset. Um, I think the um, what's been called the friend shoring strategy, working with geopolitical allies, um, makes a lot of sense. Um, but please note that it takes at least 18 months to change a supply chain. And so when you ask about multi-year funding and thinking about these investments, it would take realistically two years to change the supply chain. I think when we look at components, specifically raw materials, it's a little more complicated than just bringing it all back to the United States. Um, when we look at raw materials, there are some um, key source materials that are necessary in the supply chain that um, for the pharmaceutical supply chain that are also needed for other supply chains. And we simply get outcompeted. And so that is a scenario where if we have the finished product being manufactured in the United States, we still don't have that raw materials piece solved. And in my view, there's an opportunity to consider during a public health emergency, is there a ranked order or a prioritization given to health products for, for medical products? There are some um, raw material supply chains where the health sector only needs two to 4% of that raw material and then everything else could go to making automobiles or cell phones or computers. Are there instances like that where we can say that prioritization would happen with a geopolitical ally? 
I think there are other components of the supply chain where we are simply too concentrated in a geopolitical area. And so if we're talking about, for example, the concentration of API production in China and India, it doesn't serve us well to then create a concentration in the United States because we're again constraining ourselves. And as we're seeing with climate change, we could be a severe event away from having disruption at a major manufacturing plant. So from my view, it's, it, we're really looking at geographical diversification, but also that multi-year funding is going to be really critical because it's going to take years to do that. And so that, you know, from our vantage point is, is a part of the reason that we are thinking about how to do this with care, because without having multi-year funding, if we only see these short-time infusions of investment, it's not enough to sustain a real diversification of a supply chain. Well, that's been my, my uh, sense, too, that, that you really have to have that framework in place Absolutely. to guarantee the supply chain we're going to need. Well, thank you both. Thanks, Tom. Uh, if it's okay with our colleagues, Finish on this side, or go next to this side, and Congresswoman Brooks. Okay, thank, thank you, you, Senator. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Um, Dr. Red, I, I found it so fascinating that you started out with the whole issue of public support for biodefense. And because um, I certainly think most of us found that there wasn't even enough support among our colleagues in the House and Senate for biodefense over the years. You talk about it and would often fall on deaf ears until... Uh, until we really have had the various crises, whether Ebola, Zika, it just goes from one crisis to the other and then the interest wanes. But, but that's, I think, because the public uh, isn't engaged either. And so how would you, you've been at the CDC for a long time. I mean, what kind of public support are you talking about and how would we get after the public is so fatigued especially now around COVID, how do we marshal uh, support for biodefense? What are your ideas? I think um, that this is really, I think this is really the work that you guys have done your entire careers of how to identify issues that have political salience and marshal those. I, I think if people understood what's at risk, they would be more, more supportive and how increased funding could reduce the impact of a future pandemic. And I, it's just not something that's that's current. So I, and I think Secretary Levitt's um, around the country tour of meeting with governors is the kind of thing that's needed to um, really galvanize that report, that support. I, I guess really it's what it, what is the support being built for? And I think that this, the idea of some of the things that are very tangible like um, a vaccine that's uh, deliverable in 100 days and what that would mean in terms of deaths for a future event. Uh, the ability to uh, have uh, diagnostics available with the funding that that would take, the funding that's necessary to make sure that our responses don't stumble for the first uh, couple of months, that those are the kinds of things that could be different with sustained funding, leadership attention. And I think that could, that could be a, a virtuous cycle of showing results to the public, more support, um, and more, not necessarily more funding, but it's sufficient funding. Um, I, think, I think one example um, also from the, the uh, pre-H1N1 era uh, was the, uh, the implementation plan that the White House released that had 230-something um, uh, measures of performance and 
monthly and quarterly reports on how, how much progress was being made. That, I think that was painful for a lot of us that were working on those things, but I think it really got a lot accomplished and demonstrated to the public that the, uh, the funding that went into that was achieving results. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dr. Lewis Saint, um, when you talk about uh, supply chain, I often just think of the strategic national stockpile and uh, the challenges that, um, that, that we experienced. Um, and there was a view and has been a view as to whether or not the states should also have their own strategic national stockpiles based on, on what we saw and not just rely on the federal strategic national stockpile, but how would that, what are your thoughts on that, particularly relative to the supply chain control tower you're right. talking about? And um, so what are, what are your thoughts about the strategic national stockpile and where we go from here? Because you were here earlier, really um, concerned about how we strengthen PAPA in this next draft of legislation. And so what, uh, what recommendations do you have? Absolutely. So stockpiles are notoriously difficult to maintain. And so the idea of having state stockpiles um, gives me pause because I think it is an expensive asset that will be difficult for the states to be able to maintain over time, especially noting that um, with the cycle of disasters, we see um, global national events about every five years or so, but it may not touch every state where their stockpiles are being depleted and renewed. So one of the things that um, we are huge proponents of as partners with the SNS is thinking about how product can be rotated through the SNS in partnership with the commercial supply chain. How do you ensure that there is an ability for product to not just be sitting on a shelf for 15 years, but for it to be rotated with an understanding and an agreement that there would be a requirement for the private sector supply chain to be able to make that volume of product available within short notice, and short notice being 24 to 48 hours. So that is something that we think if we go into state stockpiles, just makes it difficult to maintain. But I think that's the tension between what the role of the state and what the role of the federal government will be in a response. And when we have one pharmaceutical supply chain, we have one medical surgical supply chain and it's complex, it does get difficult if there is a partnership at the federal government level as well as 50 additional partnerships with each stockpile. So in terms of how best to ensure that our infrastructure investment is sustainable, I think it causes some concern for how that will be sustained over time and funded. But I do think there are other solutions to the stockpile and the expansion of the stockpile that involve the private sector and involve what we call vendor managed inventory and rotation of product that could allow for us to have more capability that can get very quickly again to those states because distributors are in those states and those regions every day. So if that product is in the private sector and it needs to shuffle, I think the requirement that it is available could be there. But those are routes that distributors are making every day and would be able to make those deliveries. And to us, that might be a more sustainable option knowing that these are very expensive assets for us to maintain. Just one follow-up, besides the states and their stockpiles, uh, don't, haven't most of our hospital systems learned yeah. uh, the importance of, of stockpiling as well yeah. so that they can be ready for an outbreak of whatever okay. in, in their next region? And so it's not just states, but uh, uh, I would assume that the supply chain yes. 
that you're talking about does, can't necessarily um, control what our hospitals are doing right. or not doing. And so how do, we, how do we make sure that those supplies are spread you know, uh, appropriately across right. the country? So when we define the, the supply chain um, within HDA, we, we don't think it ends at the facility. It ends with the patient. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about robustness of the supply chain, that does mean that every part of the supply chain may need to pivot. Um, there's been a lot of the conversation about just-in-case versus just-in-time supply chains and what it looks like to boost inventory levels. And I think you're absolutely right. That has to go all the way down to the facility level. Mm -hmm. There are instances with some facilities, pharmacies being one example, where they simply do not have the space to hold a lot of product. But in health systems, there are many health systems who do have the ability to increase inventory. And it may not be that it's a stockpile, but it may be that the amount of product that they keep on hand is higher than it was during COVID, is sufficient to help them to manage a medical surge. And so that is something that we are huge proponents of, understanding that in order for there to be resilience, there has to be more at every step of the way. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Asha, Dr. George tells me that uh, we have to try to uh, move on to the next panel as soon as we can, but uh, I don't say that to uh, attempt the uh, impossible to muzzle the two of you, <laughs> but just to say uh, that, uh, pl please go ahead, Secretary Shalala. Uh, uh, I'm interested in uh, the question of whether the supply chain should be global. We made a decision that we were going to produce flu shots, for example, in the United States during my time as uh, secretary. But the issue I've always been interested in, and I think we can... You've given us some suggestions for figuring out the supply chain issue, is shelf life. Um, and yeah. we've had pretty rigid ideas about shelf life that I'm not sure in modern um, uh, biology um, are necessary. So. Has your group started to think through the shelf life issue? I know that the FDA has been doing some work on shelf life, and this is something that comes up even in the context of the SNS. Shelf life extension program was a really important component of how we could make sure that the products that were in right. the SNS could be extended. That's a really important um, conversation. I don't think there's been enough done on shelf life, but that is something that we are particularly very interested in. Um, we do know that there are regulatory processes that would have to, you know, be considered. And so that adds to um, timelines, if you will. But I think shelf life is a really important piece of this, and it would allow for us to consider product on hand in a different way because we would have more potential product available. And um, uh, one issue, uh, rotating to keep uh, sensitive about uh, shelf life, the VA could do a lot more in that area. That is, they could have warehouses and rotate uh, supplies through mm -hmm. um, because we've got enough VAs across the country. So we actually could stockpile, and we talked about that during my time at HHS, about using the VA with a storehouse mm -hmm. and having them rotate um, the supplies through. So that is uh, one avenue. Uh, let me ask. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, read a question. Um, I'm the secretary of HHS, and I appoint you as the CDC director. What's the first thing you would do, given your experience? I have to think about that for a second. <laughs> That's exactly what 
In other words, you have to think about whether you're going to accept it. I think the most important issue for CDC today is uh, trust from the public of the CDC. And so that would be my first priority would to develop a plan to increase the amount of trust that people have in CDC. You're appointed. Well, <laughs> I think a lot of that has to do with the way that um, CDC has to realize that they're talking to the whole country, not mm -hmm. public health and clinicians. And, and not I, with too much nuance. Correct. Which is part of the uh, challenge. I uh, yield to Representative Greenwood. Thanks. I'll, I'll try to be quick. So um, I agree with your, your arguments about the campaign, but I think, I think it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, as has been said, uh, it's hard enough to get 535 members of Congress to focus on this um, when it's their job. Right, to get you know, 300 and some million people to think that this is important enough to let their congressmen know that it's important is really amazingly difficult. Um, but, but back to the CDC, the, the, the part of the problem with the CDC was that it was, um, it was giving out what seemed to be varying statements and positions. And I don't fault the CDC much for that because it was an evolving situation and it's a complicated issue and all of that. But, um, but uh, and I don't know how you fix that, but so the, the question I do have, though, is does the CDC have enough authority and does it have enough resources to do its job in general and specifically in the case of a pandemic? So I just the I think there is going to be a lot of examination of the performance of CDC and certainly at the outset there were some really significant issues that weren't dealt with correctly. And I think that the failure to acknowledge those and move on was a problem. Um, I think that in terms of the, um, the authority and the support of CDC, I, I think in a pandemic, CDC may be the most visible explainer of things initially, but it's really a government-wide response. And so I think that the I would sort of re reframe your, it's not your question, but does the government have enough authority to accomplish what needs to be accomplished? And, you know, it may be that CDC doesn't have an, all the authority, but the, it's really the broader question. And I, I, would, I would hope that um, CDC is able to describe the work that needs to be done, not as just CDC work, but really across the government. And I, I think that's something that we particularly saw um, after the, the closures in April, uh, March and April, that the, what, the kind of information that you needed to have to know what the harms and benefits were of the uh, community mitigation measures that were going on, it was way beyond CDC. And I think that having a, a plan for how you're going to collect and analyze data from just different sectors and weigh them is a very high priority. It's really a government-wide priority. Um, I think that, the, that those things were, you know, that is something that is being learned. The, uh, the harms of prolonged school closures, the, uh, the psychological, the medical, uh, men, mental health issues, those are not things that are sort of known in a vague way, but I think we have a lot of information now that could be used um, in the future. It was just uh, health versus the economy, but there's really a lot more, a lot more elements to that, to that decision. Good answer. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hussain, um, on the supply chain, you talked about diversified supply chain. Um, and I, I think what you were saying is that we, we can't assume that we can have it all in the U.S. ready to go and be self-sufficient. Um, but there were sort of two things that could happen that 
One of them is if we did and something collapsed in the US, then we, don't, we no longer have relationships globally to, to make up the difference. The other thing that can happen is, is for a variety of reasons, maybe hostility or just self-servingness, mm -hmm. countries may decide to not share their, their, their supplies with us. So my question is, is, it, is the solution to that dilemma not simply diversity or non-diversity, but, um, but redundancy? so that you can, we try to be as sufficient as we can, but we, at the same time, we have connections of, uh, globally. So, you know, perhaps you buy where it's less expensive on a normal day, but, but on a bad day, you, you go back to what we've set up uh, mm -hmm. domestically. Absolutely. Um, so I think, um, in my mind, redundancy is a part of that, that resilient strategy. It's diversification and redundancy. Um, one of the things about um, redundancy is that we know that in a medical surge event, there will be certain products that will likely be needed or used. And so specifically being able to focus on where we may need greater redundancy mm -hmm. and possibly diversification away from certain nation states to, to do that is a tremendous opportunity. And one that if for nothing else, the flu season cycle, provides us an opportunity to test on a recurring basis. Mm -hmm. And again, from the sustainability perspective, that is an investment that can be more sustainable than trying to pull all of the pharmaceutical supply chains back to the United States. Thank you. Thank that. you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks to both of you. Thanks um, uh, for being flexible and coming on a little earlier in the afternoon. But uh, really, you brought a lot of uh, experience and Let's see a vision uh, for the future to our deliberations that'll be helpful to us as we uh, update our foundational report based on the COVID-19 experience. So thank you and all the best. Thank you. Uh, let's call the next panel, which is more or less back on schedule. The Honorable, very Honorable Robert Cadillac, U.S. Air Force retired now Senior Counselor uh, for the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, formerly Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS, and formerly Special Assistant to President George W. Bush for Health and Biodefense. Also, the Honorable Mark McClellan, now Director of the uh, um, now director and a professor of business management, medicine and policy at the Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, former administrator uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and former commissioner of FDA, and Dr. Uh, Bruce Gellin, uh, global public health strategy at the Rockefeller Foundation. Wow, there's a lot of experience at this table. I don't know why it brings to mind that famous President Kennedy remark when he had a group of Nobel laureates for dinner at the White House that there has, hadn't been that much uh, brain power at the White House since Jefferson dined there alone. So uh, I have that same feeling as I look at this table. Anyway, and Bob Cadillac, I haven't mentioned, I always never hesitate to say, is the founding father of this commission, uh, and we thank him for that. Uh, Bob, why don't you begin? Well, thank you, Senator Lieberman. It's uh, <laughs> great to be back. I would just acknowledge my experience in all of this, 
and just simply say I could have had a V8 uh, <laughs> from the time. Uh, but I think the opportunity to come and share a little bit of some of my experience, at least in some kind of consolidated fashion, um, may be helpful to kind of pick up on some of the issues that were brought up by uh, Steve Red and the previous panel. Sure. Because I think one of the things that uh, I can say from my experience is that somehow in the end you have to operationalize preparedness and that it, it's not good enough for the federal government to be prepared, it's not good enough for state and locals to be prepared, it's not good enough for the private sector to be prepared because we have to be all prepared together. And it really does take a concerted effort to somehow try to weave that into a culture of preparedness. I'll just note today that um, I guess it was the House passed the uh, NDAA for $858 billion to protect our country from foreign threats. Uh, and in the one year that I oversaw the, the biodefense strategy review uh, in the previous administration, uh, we spent about six to seven billion dollars roughly on preparedness for biological threats. For a biological threat that in estimates by uh, uh, former, uh, uh, I think Secretary uh, Summers and, and Cutler talked about was a cost of the United States about $16 trillion. So if you think about that for a moment, uh, we can do a lot better, no doubt. Uh, and we lost a million Americans to boot, which is priceless in every category and sense. So if there's any justification to see how we could do better, I think there are reasonable models to, to consider. Um, I would just point out that the topic for today's discussion is about planning exercises and responses. I would just add a couple of other points into that is planning, training, exercises, responses, innovation, and staffing. Uh, because as we've heard today, that one of our greatest Achilles heel, even in today's world, the triple-demic, or whatever they call it, where you have RSV, influenza, and COVID, is the fact that we have staff shortages from burnout and from lacking of recruiting and for a variety of reasons that are understandable given the incredible job that our private sector healthcare workers have done. But if we're going to build on this experience and try to look for the future, clearly I think the start is the planning cycle is one. I have to admit my experience in all of this had nothing or little to do with healthcare and everything to do with counterterrorism. Uh, that's where I spent my, my career in the military focused on in the 80s when I first entered special operations uh, after the failed Iranian hostage event. And I just acknowledged the Holloway Commission that uh, evaluated that experience for the US government and realized that we were not well organized or prepared in a variety of ways. And, and there were certain things that were committed to over the long haul literally decades that ultimately led from that failure to the success of Osama bin Laden's raid. And I just use that as an analogy that this is a decade-long process that we will be going through as a nation to learn from this particular pandemic to prepare for the next one. God forbid we know it will happen again. So with that, I think the key thing here is, is that for planning, we had some in useful instruments in, in advance of COVID-19 but not, not exceptional ones and not adequate ones by any means. On the planning side, we had the, the, the White House pandemic uh, flu influenza plan. We had the, uh, the FEMA pandemic crisis action plan or called uh, PANCAP as it was called. But yet all of these things were based on a, a series of assumptions that quite frankly were not well tooled for the pandemic that we confronted, which was 
we didn't have diagnostics, we didn't have therapeutics, we didn't have vaccines, and, and we certainly had very little clue about the virus that we were confronted with. So it was something terribly novel that quite frankly put it, everything on its head. So as, as useful as that planning tool was, it really was something that there was a lot of, um, what I'd say, innovation as well as adaptation to deal with. The second area that I would just, so planning becomes an important element of this, but so does training, and this goes to the idea that to the elements of the government that have to work together, state, local, federal, we do need to introduce the role of the private sector because quite frankly, whether you look at it from the standpoint of the, the essential elements of what we were able to do, whether it be with the supply chain, whether it be with hospital care, whether it would be with you know, warp speed or the pharmaceutical business, uh, it really did require that private sector involvement and that was invaluable, indispensable, and that was the difference between success that we had and failure that we also experienced. So that would be something I would ask, add to that. And one other thing is the issue of the industrial base, which is, again, another piece of this. We talked about distribution networks, but we also have to think about how do we manufacture things that may not be limited to just healthcare materials or vaccines or therapeutics or diagnostics, but how do we keep the nation at work, uh, going to school and doing the things that we have to do to maintain uh, not only our functioning, but our, our mental health as well. And it really does come down with exercising. And, and this was something that I learned in, in very young as a captain is that we exercised all the time. And it was something that occurred on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis to test not the easy things, but the hard things to recognize where we were weak and where we needed improvement. And that really takes a lot of what I'd say honesty, candor, and uh, what I'd say commitment to do because that's not always something people like to do, but it literally means lives are at risk, are at stake, and, and it can be saved if we do our job, when I say our job, collectively, federal, state, local, and private sector together in a concerted fashion. And then the last thing is responses, and this is where I think where there's great opportunity to kind of conform maybe more, and we recognized it before the pandemic with Crimson Contagion, that we had shortfalls in what we, and I would say we, Asper in particular had, in its relationship with FEMA or lack of relationship with FEMA, and how we needed to be more integrated at the federal, state, and particularly at the local level, but through FEMA to, to basically have a unity of effort, because again, there was a lot that we couldn't do that we had to do, uh, and FEMA was a great enabler. But we can't substitute the subject matter expert that's represented by the Department of Health and Human Services, by the FDA, by the CDC, by HRSA, by, um, uh, by ASPR, by BARDA, by somehow turning over the keys of a public health response and medical response to an agency, FEMA, which is very good at moving commodities, but not necessarily taking care of patients. And so that would be one other thing. The last thing I'll mention, uh, given the time, is really about the innovation piece, which is how do you take a vulnerability and make it into a strength? And I'll give you one example of this. And again, it's the credit to BARDA and to the people who were looking at this as a consequence, not of the pandemic, but of, of uh, actually the hurricanes, particularly Maria, that flattened our ability to uh, produce IV fluids, of all things. And with it, we were able to innovate using some technology that existed, first developed by Coke for potable water in Africa, 
then being used to make sterile water for home dialysis to literally make a decentralized capability for manufacturing IV fluids that could be made in any hospital if we needed on demand. Now that's still in genesis, it's going through FDA approval, but it's that kind of, what I'd say, innovation that really gives resilience. And I think that's one part of the equation that needs to be considered. So the last thing I'll just close with is, I've talked about the, the key elements, I think, and maybe some of the areas that we should work on, but I think it's really the last thing is to promote, as we did in Department of Defense, with the, with the idea of jointness. You asked about fixes. I think one of the, the, the best fixes that we had for the military was Goldwater Nichols. And it required that people work together across a department like HHS, across a federal government like VA and HHS and DOD, to really, and with the state and locals, to really understand capabilities, insights in how we operate, how we can operate better together, and do so in a way that honestly uh, it will only be tested either through an exercise or the real thing. And, and you don't want to practice these things in the real thing. And it really requires that we make a commitment around how do we exercise not just part of the system, but the whole system on a regular basis. That's manufacturing pharmaceuticals. That's manufacturing PPE, delivering PPE. It's also helping hospitals move patients to basically meet the needs of those patients, not for their acute needs, but for the basic needs that happen with chronic illness. So it's not an easy problem. It's a decades-long challenge, I think. But I'm convinced that because of your efforts that we'll go a long way to get there. Uh, thanks very much, Bob. That was uh, very helpful. I'm sure we'll have uh, questions for you. Uh, Mark McClellan, good to see you again. It's good been a while, you. and thank it you for been. all your uh, service, which continues. Uh, <laughs> uh, so please proceed. Thank you, and thank you for the for the, the whole commission for your leadership, uh, timely leadership needed on this issue. I had the privilege of working with Bob, and as you mentioned, both leading both CMS and FDA. These are fundamentally increasingly important agencies for the nation's biosecurity. So I'm gonna agree with Bob's comments and build on them by focusing on FDA and CMS issues. And as you mentioned, I'm now leading Duke University's Margolis Center for Health Policy, which is a university-wide program there at Duke with offices here in Washington. We've been working extensively on pandemic response and healthcare preparedness issues related to these public health programs. FDA and CMS are increasingly important because the biomedical components of biosecurity are providing more powerful and timely tool, tools than ever, more so than in the past, as illustrated by the platform technologies developed during COVID. This includes the capacity to identify a pathogen and its genetic composition within days of an outbreak, the capacity to develop laboratory tests at scale to detect infections soon after that, and to scale them up uh, both in the lab and at the point of care within a matter of weeks. So we should never again face the silent spread of a serious pathogen like happened in early 2020. It also includes the capacity to rapidly assess whether promising existing treatments can be repurposed to help against a new threat and the capacity to develop, test, and deploy effective targeted treatments based on synthetic biology like monoclonal antibodies within a few months. And finally, and very importantly, the capacity to develop, test, and deploy at scale 
safe and, and effective vaccines within 180 days or less. These recent and emerging medical and healthcare capabilities can be game changers for biosecurity responses. Our health professionals have from the start been a critical part of the COVID response, and in turn, CMS has been a critical public health emergency response agency for enabling that. But there is more we can do to support this frontline healthcare response. There have been and there continue to be lengthy assessments related to effective preparedness and response. We've contributed to that at Duke, many others have. I just wanna highlight a few key points here. One key cross-cutting theme for FDA and CMS is the concept of warm capacity, built-in capabilities and readiness in our ongoing policies and supports for medical product development and availability and healthcare's ability to use these products that can be more readily surged into an effective response to pandemics and other major biologic threats to the nation. So I wanna focus on two important FDA opportunities here. First relates to emergency use authorization. This is a critical regulatory authority to enable faster action on promising therapies where the expected benefits outweigh the risks one related issue that needs action now is how do we quickly improve the limited evidence that's by definition available on existing and emerging diagnostics and therapeutics when they're considered for emergency use. In short, thanks to the massive growth in digital health data and the capabilities to use it, it should be possible to rapidly implement practical frontline clinical evaluations of promising products quickly. England's recovery trial platform provided very useful and clear evidence on existing treatments that worked like corticosteroids in hospitalized patients and those that didn't like hydrochloroquine. Israel's real-world evidence on vaccines enabled rapid insights into vaccine effectiveness against new variants. Many healthcare organizations want to support the same kind of capabilities here. And as FDA Commissioner Rob Califf has emphasized, we should be able to use these capabilities not only for rapid evidence when we need it in an emergency, but for ongoing public health challenges like the most effective treatments for particular individuals for heart disease, diabetes, and other prominent uh, public health threats. A second issue for FDA is public-private collaboration on supply chain robustness. You've already covered this uh, in the previous panel to some extent. For everything from pipettes to reliable masks to advanced biologics, FDA working with the private sector can improve data sharing to facilitate stress testing of manufacturing and supply chains in advance and enable early warning and surge response planning if there are impending shortages. Our Duke Margolis program has worked with the Healthcare Leadership Council to develop recommendations for congressional and administrative action on this topic. You were involved in that too, I think. And we're continuing to build on these recommendations. These steps will also help prevent drug shortages and critical drug price surges that continue to happen on an ongoing basis. Turning to CMS, the agency's rapid regulatory changes and payment flexibilities were critical to enabling healthcare organizations to respond to surges in emergency visits and hospitalizations and to shift much of the other care that Americans needed to telemedicine and home-based services, even hospitals at home. But there are other critical steps that CMS has taken and that Congress should support to strengthen our healthcare capabilities for response to threats going forward. First, Congress should support CMS policies to enable the availability of timely, consistent, and reliable national data on cases, hospitalizations, and healthcare capacity to address public health threats. For example, current CMS rules provide a national standard for hospitals to report on COVID cases and on hospital and ICU use as we move beyond the current public health emergency. 
Frontline healthcare providers don't mind providing these data since they need it to better understand their local situation and threats, provided that it's done in a nationally uniform and administratively non-burdensome way using national electronic standards and well-developed privacy protections. This is happening now, and it's a much more reliable and efficient approach to providing key timely surveillance and response data than relying on the often limited and fragmented case reporting through public health agencies alone. Second, further congressional support is needed for steps by CMS to provide payments that are not just for what's called fee-for-service, but payments to healthcare providers for better health. In 2020, Andy Slavitt and I brought together a broad bipartisan group of former CMS administrators, including some that you know well, Secretary Shalala, to recommend that congressional emergency healthcare assistance include steps to improve data reporting and care to prevent serious cases in the first place. In other words, we wanted to reinforce the shift to paying for healthcare results, health outcomes, to promote innovative prevention-oriented approaches to delivering care, something that was especially needed in this public health emergency. With bipartisan congressional support, CMS has laid out a strategy for advancing payment reforms in Medicare and Medicaid that enable care models centered on patients and that do more to address things like social drivers of bad health and to enable prevention-oriented care at home. In the pandemic, organizations that had already adopted these value-based care approaches were much more readily able to take steps like pre-positioning COVID tests at home for their elderly and high-risk patients, working with public health to identify uh, vaccination gaps, getting patients reliable information and easy access for vaccinations and boosters, and putting in place a quick path for tests to treat. All of the steps that can limit the future health impact of COVID and other threats without disrupting our communities. CMS reforms with bipartisan support can also help strengthen healthcare providers' ability to improve the health of the population they serve more generally. Many healthcare organizations are making progress on early diagnosis of treatment of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, addressing social risk factors for these and other preventable disease burdens. Along the lines of our 2020 administrator recommendations, Congress should support these further reforms in Medicare and Medicaid, which will strengthen and accelerate the trends towards more effective population health care and health equity and towards better partnerships with public health. These two CMS-related steps will also help enable healthcare professionals to be more effective partners in providing re relevant, accurate, and trusted health information to their patients, neighbors, and local communities. So a third step for CMS is congressional support for better healthcare public health partnerships on informing the public. We should help CDC and ASPR build out the systems used by many states and local public health authorities during this pandemic, including North Carolina where I live, to provide timely and relevant guidance to local healthcare providers, including frontline physicians, nurses, pharmacists, community health workers, so that they can be reliable sources of practically relevant public health information to their patients, their neighbors, and their community leaders. Despite the concerning trends that we've talked about here today, national declines in trust in public health institutions, frontline healthcare professionals have retained high levels of trust and can be a strong backbone for getting accurate and practically actionable information to their communities. So thanks again for the opportunity to be here and thanks especially for your work to enable our biodefense systems to benefit from better medical technologies and improving healthcare capabilities to protect and promote the health of our population. Thank, Thank you, you very much, uh, very much Mark.
<clears throat> Excellent uh, suggestions uh, from your experience and observation of what's happened in recent years. Uh, Dr. Gallen, uh, thank you for being here and bringing all your experience to Thanks. the table, too. It's a treat to be here, and a special honor to be my, my former federal colleagues. We worked on many issues together when I was the director of the National Vaccine Program Office at HHS and led the HHS's first pandemic influenza plan. And it's an honor to be here today representing the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, where I'm the chief of global public health strategy. The Rockefeller Foundation's mission is unchanged since its history over 100 years ago, to promote the well-being of humanity throughout the world. And while we don't have specific programs in biodefense, from our earliest days, we took on infectious disease threats, including hookworm, yellow fever, and malaria. And further, we have a long history of investments in health system strengthening, particularly in lower and middle income countries. And these investments not only benefit day-to-day -day public health and healthcare, but also strengthen preparedness and response to infectious disease threats and the potential for outbreaks anywhere that could become pandemics anywhere. As we're reminded all too well over the past three years, the pandemic is not just a health problem, but has economic, social, and national security implications. Thus, the connection of pandemic preparedness, prevention, response to biodefense preparedness that's the focus of our discussions today. And while the bulk of our work at the Rockefeller Foundation is in lower and middle-income countries, like many, we, pre we reposition many of our resources to respond to the, to the COVID in the U.S. and around the world. I'll give you a few examples of each. On the domestic front, three areas I'd like to highlight. Testing, equitable vaccination, and uh, taking on the misinformation and disinformation issues. On testing early on, actually with Mark's group, um, we brought in companies and, uh, and expertise to develop an implementation plan for K-12 testing in all 50 states. This prompted a, a $10 billion federal investment in school testing capacity and accelerated the implementation of testing, testing nationwide. On equitable vaccination, again in the United States, we took an equity-first approach and recognized the critical importance of local leadership to ensure accessible vaccination. In that case, we invested $23 million and partnered with more than 80 community-based organizations across five cities in the United States, Baltimore, Chicago, Houston, Newark, and Oakland, to ensure accurate vaccine information came from trusted local sources. And we're proud that this effort was highlighted in the recent White House summit on COVID-19 equity and highlighting what works. In that setting, what we learned, uh, and I'd like to highlight are three things. The importance of real-time, reliable, and modern data systems to inform decision-making and make adjustments and strategies to be able to tell what's working and what's not and where you need to redirect your efforts. Community resilience that happens at a community level and the healthcare community and the, the, these community partners are amplify, amplify that resilience. And just because, Bob, this is a warp speed thing, just because you build it doesn't mean they will come. And the critical importance of meeting people where they are, geographically and philosophically, is the essential ingredient of this trust equation. And that brings me to a third uh, program I'd like to highlight, which we recall our Mercury Project, not because it's related to NASA, but Mercury alludes to the Roman god of messaging and communication. Mm -hmm. We partner with the Robert Johnson Foundation, the Craig Newmark Foundation, to support the Social Science Research Council uh, to, to bring in research teams to conduct, conduct community-based research to understand the magnitude of the threat of mis and disinformation on COVID vaccination and to design strategies to counter this threat. In an environment where mis and disinformation has the ability to harm health of individuals and communities, we recognize that this is not limited to COVID as we've already highlighted. Mm 
And the recent Surgeon General advisory confronting health misinformation to build uh, misinformation to build a health health information healthy information environment is an important first step and a call to action of a problem that's going to be part of our landscape for the foreseeable future. Future, we need to invest. We need to match our investments in vaccine R and D with a serious effort on the demand side of the equation, the social, behavioral, and communication science research needed to be sure that vaccines turn into vaccinations. The, the HHS and DOD effort of Operation Warp Speed was indeed historic for accomplishing what it did in record time, particularly when from the start we weren't sure if we, if we can get a vaccine. But despite our experience and the mounds of clinical and epidemiologic data on vaccine safety and effectiveness, as we're watching hospitalizations today picking up with the triple threat of COVID, flu, and RSV, and that fewer than 15% of Americans have received their updated booster, fewer than 40% have, have received their seasonal flu vaccine, that's the data that tells us we need to better understand what drives vaccine uptake. The last mile represents the logistics needed to, to bring vaccines to the communities. It's the last inch of the last mile that's gonna turn vaccines into vaccinations. And it's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination. On the global side, to meet the pandemic moment, the foundation has been investing in pandemic prevention and response to match our global public health, make our global public health systems better to be able to prepare, predict, prevent, and respond to the next pandemic and the spread of infectious diseases. As we're in the process now of developing a foundation-wide climate-focused um, uh, strategy, mitigating the impacts of, uh, of climate change are gonna be increasingly important on the many climate-sensitive infectious diseases. At the, at the heart of our work at the Rockefeller Foundation, both past and future is data, and the need to, con to try to connect fragmented data systems, bring together traditional health, epidemiologic, and clinical data with other non-traditional data, such as mobility, climate, geospatial, and consumer data, and apply modern analytics to derive insights uh, that we can find, uh, we can spot signals sooner. Our, our mantra is see the signals, speed the response, and stop outbreaks. We formed a network of over 40 partner organizations that break sec bridge sectors and geographies to strengthen partnerships and enable and strengthen our early warning system, again with data at the center. We've committed over $60 million to network partners in the US and around the world, including a $10 million commitment to the World Bank's Pandemic Fund and a $15 million commitment to the Global Fund, the latter to expand lab laboratory capability across lower and middle income countries. I spotlight just a few of these uh, investments to provide a sense of what our philanthropic efforts have put in place. But for you and what you're trying to do, I wanna highlight just three of the lessons that we've learned from this work. First and foremost, we need a revolution in, in data systems, in data gathering, data analytics, and data sharing. Since the emergence of COVID, national, global, national and global systems of data capture and sharing have taken a big step forward, but we still have work to do. We're using only a small percentage of the information that's available, and it tends to be siloed. To get a more complete picture of the infectious disease landscape, there's an urgent and compelling need to integrate clinical, epidemiologic, and genomic data with the, the non-health data that I've, that I've highlighted previously. The second lesson has already been highlighted is the panic and next neglect cycle. This is not a recipe for success. Uh, I, I won't dwell on that because you, it's, it's, raised, it's been raised probably on every panel so far, but, uh, but without the sustainable financing needed to build and strengthen these systems, we're gonna keep seeing the same repeat of the same, of the same problem. And finally, we've learned uh, from COVID um, that community trust and community involvement is vital for an effective, an effective response and a resilient recovery. Pandemics are global, but they play out locally in communities across the globe. 
community-based organizations and civil society have demonstrated their critical roles in listening to community concern and being trusted sources of information. And it may sound trite, but we need to put public back, back squarely at the center of public health. I look forward to the ongoing conversations and the opportunity that these discussions will help to inform your next report. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Gellin. I'm sure they will. Uh, just a quick question about something you mentioned in passing that does need more uh, study. Uh, I'm curious if you have an opinion. Why has the uh, percentage of Americans getting the uh, later boosters dropped off so much, do you think, from the original vaccines, which were also not as high a percentage as I would have guessed, but still higher than the boosters? Um, there, are, there, are, there are probably many answers and many opinions. I would start with confusion. Uh, they're not really quite sure what they're supposed to be getting. There's a lot of different terms, fully vaccinated, up-to-date vaccination, um, and people aren't really sure. I think there's also some skepticism. People have seen this. They thought, well, we, we've, had, we, we've seen enough of this. I've had enough. I'll take my chances. They're not seeing what they saw in, in the spring of 2020. Uh, it's really disappointing. And it's, I think the other part, it's not only a public health problem or a public health uh, concern to address. I think it's an everyone's concern to address. I highlighted the importance that we had in our, in our domestic program of local voices, the, the religious groups, the barbers, others that can help to inform, be the trusted sources of that, of that information. But it's particularly surprising and frankly alarming now as we're watching hospital beds fill. This is now leading the news cycle where it's been gone for a long time. And two out of the three of these uh, viral respiratory syndromes have, have safe and effective vaccines that can prevent them. And that message isn't getting across. Okay, thank you. I, I do want to say, uh, uh, you summarized it in a nice phrase, neglect, uh, panic neglect cycle. And others have talked about this, and uh, uh, including Dr. Wright on the last panel about trying to generate support for sustained uh, effort. Um, uh, and this is happening now on Capitol Hill because there's a feeling that I was going to ask about it, Bob, but there's a uh, the, money that the Biden administration has asked for to implement its national biodefense strategy has, um, at least last I heard, unless it was included in the defense bill uh, today, passed the House, uh, there's nothing happening. And um, ultimately, it's hard to get people, enough people to get focused on this. And uh, I, it requires leadership. It requires, I mean, this is why like the Cadillac, I think, uh, created this commission and, and was resourceful enough to get foundation funding because it needed somebody to go out front and say, hey, we got a problem coming here. Uh, and even then, we didn't do so well until the problem actually occurred. But now it has, and it's in our minds, and it takes leadership on Capitol Hill. Uh, a question to you, Bob, related, but not directly on point of planning. Um, the committee you're on, produced, you've been staffing, Senator Burke, produced a, a unanimous bipartisan vote to create a 9-11 type commission to look back at the COVID-19 pandemic and make recommendations about the future, just relevant to what we're saying. I know that uh, I've heard that there's an active effort to try to get it attached to one of the bills that will pass in the lame duck session. Do you, do you, uh, do you have any sense of what the status of that is? Uh, sir, it's been mixed, honestly. I think yeah. the, the uh, concern is, is that there is uh, support maybe for the commission, but maybe some, uh, not some of the other tenants in the in the prevent bill. 
So it's a question of whether that will survive yeah. a, a vote um, per se if it gets broken up. Uh, but I think the, the intent here is to try to get it in total going forward, which would also create a, a permanent White House position to be responsible for overseeing uh, management of the entire biodefense for, for, me, portfolio, including right. pandemic preparedness. You, I mean, that in a way goes to what you described, you used the uh, analogy to jointness in the defense areas. Uh, do you agree? And I mean, is that one way to achieve jointness? Sir, it is. It, 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 there is, has to be some kind of top-down drive to this. And it, I think it, it's been a situation, obviously, in different white, uh, white Houses and administrations. I was uh, sharing with uh, Secretary Shalala, the, my former boss, uh, Dr. Ken Bernard, yeah. who, who worked in the Clinton administration, and then with the, the arrival of uh, George W. Bush as president, the NSC was reconfigured. He was out of a job. 9-11 happens. He's back in the position, though an elevated stature uh, from senior director to special assistant. And in, in some ways, uh, when there was a turnover again and again, these positions kind of get lost in the yeah. shuffle. Yeah. And, and I think to have some statutory requirement for it, I think would be helpful on one hand uh, to help the White House, but I think there also has to extend down at the, the, the department and agency level the same kind of thought of, of not only leadership, but jointness to make sure that those participants, and again, to give a shout out to the VA in particular, uh, they were a real great partner during the pandemic. And, and in some ways, to, to recognize that and codify that within the VA, I think, is important going forward. Okay, that's really uh, helpful. As you know, we struggled with that as we prepared our uh, foundational report in 2015. And we actually represent, recommended that the vice president have this authority. Uh, we sort of did that by process of elimination because we wanted to give it stature in the White House. But uh, that's an, one of our ideas that has not been... Uh, enthusiastically embraced. Uh, I would say that response has been bipartisan, for lack of enthusiasm. <laughs> so, okay, Secretary Shalala. It's really an honor to have this panel. Uh, Dr. Gellin, I'm a great fan um, of your work uh, over the years. Um, I've always been uh, concerned with the question of how much of the supply chain should we be reducing so that we can produce our own vaccines in the United States. As you know, in the 1990s, we did that on the flu vaccine because we were so concerned about the supply chain issues. That's more complicated with these new vaccines, but there has to be a balance. And in saying that, I'm not suggesting the U.S. should go it alone, but maybe invest in production sites for other countries. We did that for Vietnam, for example. Uh, so they could produce their own childhood vaccines. Have you thought about uh, the balance between the two? I think about thank you. Thank you very much. I think about that one a lot. And in fact, you remember in your tenure there were there were difficulties with supply, and then I had to watch that uh, every year. I remember um, one year it was on our anniversary when I was told that half of the nation's vaccine supply was cut was cut um, because there was we only had two suppliers and one of them had a contamination, and that. Pretty much ruined our anniversary dinner. Um, but but the, I'm so sorry. But the, but, the, but, but the reality of that was the recognition that we only had two suppliers, and yeah. at that point, most was overseas. Most of their production was was a large part of it was overseas, and that was frankly a wake up call 
in the setting when we worked together on in the bird flu time to realize how limited that capacity would be. I forget exactly, but if we were going to at that point. Well, we it, solved that problem with Holly Hills, North Carolina. I think that big production. Well, that was one of many of those solutions. Yeah. That was clearly one, but that was the yeah. recognition of of saying we're going to need to do better. And in fact, exactly. a, a U.S. first uh, approach to making sure we had as much capacity and when, when things are manufactured overseas to bring as much of the ingredients here as possible. So I think that's shored up quite a bit. It then gets into the question of the of what other countries and other regions should do. We've heard a lot of that discussion, but it ultimately it gets back to having healthy markets because if you have excessive supply of manufacturing everywhere, um, then you're not going to have, a, you have to worry about making sure that there's going to be sufficient demand everywhere. We're seeing that globally now when there's, there's a year later when the supply problem was, was quite different. Now there's, there's way, way more supply than there is demand. So I think it's, I, I think a lot of it about because it's important that there be equity across the world, but trying to do it in a way that we can ensure that we have, we have healthy markets so that um, investing in manufacturing leads to an investment in vaccination. Have you also thought about the shelf life issue? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we, that's something that we, I didn't know about it and Mark probably knows all about it. But this program is really quite, quite, it's, it's the Defense Department started it, uh, I think, first. And it recognized the amount of savings that, that, that could, be, could be gained by, by finding out what, the, as you said, the biological and chemical properties were to allow the true life of a product to, to determine its shelf life. And that was printed on the label. I mean, if we could do processed foods, we could probably solve this one. There's a whole, I mean, Mark can talk about it. There's a whole program at the FDA that does exactly that. I'm sure it can be applied to more things. We did it during my tenure to ensure that the vaccines that we put, the pre-pandemic vaccines we put in the stockpile had as long a shelf life as possible. And I'll tell you one example. When Canada had the same problem, they were about to throw out their vaccine and the billions of dollars they invested in until we told them about this program connected to the FDA and they were able to retain it for much Mark, longer. Mark, do you want to come in on the shelf life? Yeah, I'd be, be glad to add to Bruce's comments. This, this this is something where FDA does have an active program and, and attention to it would be helpful not only in the pandemic but for understanding shelf life and extending the use and availability and therefore the reliability of other medical products, vaccines, et cetera, outside of public health emergencies. One of the challenges in, in this pandemic when we had a, really a first time large scale use of the mRNA platform, which is really effective against um, the COVID threat, was that because it's a new platform, you really don't know. Um, that's one of the challenges with emergency use is, is you've got to have some time to see what stability looks like over time. So we're learning along the way, and that's something that FDA paid attention to. But to get back to one of my earlier points, if we have some ready-to-go platforms like mRNA that could be surged quickly in the next threat, you're going to have more confidence the next time around about the properties of those vaccines on the safety side, on the durability side, other things that really can and um, inspire a more confident and fast response. Um, I have one other question for you, Mark, um, that you didn't uh, really mention. I, I get the data modernization issue. I mean, all of us are for that. But um, we never used all the labs that were available yeah. in the United States. We never linked them. We never certified them. It's a big issue. We have, we've made billions of dollars investments in the major research universities they have huge lab capacity, and we didn't take advantage of that. 
Yeah. What's the strategy there? Well, that, that's, I think, one of the important lessons learned from the early COVID response is there was a lot of university lab capacity for doing PCR tests as soon as January or labs in Seattle that were um, trying to get this up and running. It just wasn't built into the response plan as much as it could be. And as I mentioned, I, I do think going forward, the expectation should be that if there is a new threat, there will be a plan for scaling up first the laboratory PCR testing, and then if it's a real threat, um, these platforms that we have now for, for rapid even home use or point-of-care tests as well. Um, this is gets back to the notion of pandemic response that's much more driven by public-private partnerships and, and built in and planned for. These tests um, are also, I think, potentially very helpful in the triple-demic that we're in now. If we had uh, more reliable, predictable demand for those tests, the, t the cost should come down, the ability to contain RSV, flu, et cetera, would, would, would go up. And if the so, shelf life was extended, and then, we also could manage that. Yeah, and that's something we learned about with some of the um, new rapid antigen tests that you know the, the initial shelf life was conservatively estimated at one level, turned out to be longer. Uh, we had to make some, FDA had to make some label changes announced uh, to tell the public to keep the tests on their, on their shelves at home longer, even though they're past the expiration date. Again, if we if we know more about the platforms and are really ready to use them, we can do a better job of increasing the availability of the tests. Thank you, Bob. You and I talked during COVID because um, I was concerned about how the supplies were being, and you didn't have complete control because uh, because of the public-private partnership. The private sector states were trying to contract separately; um, they were outbid. What's your solution? Uh, to that issue. So one of the things that uh, came apparent was that problem and how it was kind of reconciled, maybe not completely, but at least to some element of effectiveness, which was, if our, if you call them our supplies, our Admiral Polovchek, who we hired to basically run this, was able to work with the major distributors and based on data that was provided by the distributors as well as the end users, were able to identify what were the trends and where were the, the needs were so you could actually direct, the federal government could direct where supplies could be sent. Uh, that was a, a very good temporizing method. It, it doesn't quite exist anymore, unfortunately. It's gone back to status quo. But I think that's, a, that's one area that you really do need to build into because it became very effective, particularly in the fall, the, the late summer and fall of 2020, where we could link the the hospitalization rates, the acuity rates, and staffing uh, staffing levels in hospitals, and along with the supply chain, be able to actually see what was going on and actually see where the need could be in a week or 10 days, which allowed you to flex with the state and locals and with the hospital systems to meet the needs before they became critical. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that, quite frankly, was done. We've, we've kind of lost that, and I think that that's something that needs to be reinstitutionalized, because quite frankly, uh, that is going to be the difference in any kind of event, whether it be a pandemic or regional event, if you have a good idea of what the needs are and can direct scarce resources to them. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. Uh, so, Bob. Um, you began by talking about the disparity between what we spend on the on defense writ large and biodefense and how it's disproportional to the trillions of dollars that, you know, the, 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 that the pandemic costs us. 
So if you had one job and one job alone, and that was that in the next Congress, you're in charge of getting Congress to, pay, to, to do what it needs to do, both in terms of legislation and appropriations. You know, given we've got Republicans by the narrowest of margin, the House, got the Senate narrow margin, Democrats, what do you think is a, a potentially, you've been around this town a long time, you've seen the Congress from inside the Capitol and outside the Capitol. What do you think we need to do in order to, to uh, achieve success here? So I think there's a certain base level funding that probably is necessary to, to basically uh, uh, address the needs of, let's say, local public health. And that needs a revolution in terms of how we effectively manage that. I mean, it's a highly fragmented system and how can we bring greater unity and, of effort and the like. But the second part is I think you need something like the disaster relief fund. Yeah, I mean, I, let me just interrupt you. Sure. I'm not asking you so much um, about what we need to get done. I'm asking you about the politics. How do we get the Congress? Oh. <laughs> how do we get the Congress to do it? I got it. Um, not, now you know, I, because I, as soon as you say pandemic, some people start setting their hair on fire about mask mandates and other people set right. the fire on money going to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, well, so. I, I think it's I think it's got to be the, the basis of an economic argument, which is the cost of unpreparedness and how we have to deal with yeah. it. I mean, I think we have the starkest numbers that you'll ever have yeah. ever. I mean, it was never believed in in the sense of an influenza pandemic that it would cost estimated seventeen trillion dollars like this one did, and the and, and that that's short term cost. That's not long term cost to society. So I think in some ways there has to be some, what's say, steely-eyed economist with green, you know the green shades and whatever go, going in there and saying this is what we need, this is what it costs us, this is what it will cost us in the future if we have anything like this again, and these are the things that probably need to be done to mitigate our risks and exposure to these kinds of things. Thank you, Mark. You talked about a, a long list of capacities that we need to have, and I want to zero in on one of them, which was the warm. Uh, facilities for manufacturing therapeutics and, yeah. and vaccines. Could you sort of walk through how you would build that? Who pays for it? Who owns it? Who operates it? Uh, is, does it is it utilized for other uh, manufacturing capacities in the interim? Yeah. Um, and you know, why aren't we there yet? Yeah, I think the, the general point of reducing the need for emergency funding that can be brought to bear um, when an emergency arises by building more capabilities into the system is something I think applies across the board and addressing the, the, the problem that you all were just discussing. And the platforms are, are, are there to do that. So many manufacturers are taking steps now to build in more robust manufacturing after seeing what's happened with supply chain disruptions, both in the first part of the pandemic and frankly, you know, this year and on an ongoing basis as well. And FDA and policy makers have supported that by trying to develop better measures of just how reliable manufacturing supply chains are. This is something that is relevant outside of public health emergencies. You know, where are your critical APIs coming from for manufacturing? Um, if one plant goes down, do you have some redundancy built in? These are things that can me we can measure, and um, many um, uh, hospitals and health systems want more reliable supplies now. So whether it's Premier or Civic RX or some of the other um, organizations involved in providing more reliable supply, they're building that into the contracts. Um, something that CMS could do, for example, is uh, start developing measures of how reliable a hospital supply uh, chains are. And are you suggesting this that the private pharma biopharmaceutical industry 
can finance this? Um, I'm not sure they can finance it by themselves, but it would certainly be less expensive to, to have some manufacturing standards that are well understood for you know, whether it's for yeah whether it's biologics or, or vaccines or, or injectables. Um, having some standards that that could be applied, and then do some pressure testing of you know do we have enough capacity on hand if there is a surge in needs for certain of these products to meet those needs while still providing other critical medicines. That's a kind of a public-private collaboration that builds on some of the work that, that Bob so was describing. federal dollars or tax incentives go into incentivizing? Yeah, and, and I think a way to justify that is not only for emergency response, but also for measurable abilities to reduce shortages that arise under routine circumstances. For example, to help with, right now, hospitals are facing this triple-demic, so we're seeing an an increase in COVID cases. Hopefully it won't translate into a big increase in hospitalizations, but that's that's a surge in needs for a lot of um, uh, IV drugs and, and other products that might be in short supply if we don't plan ahead for it. And this is something we need routinely uh, in, in healthcare for a robust healthcare system. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Gellin, you went through a long list of fabulous things that the foundation has done. Um, what, what I was wondering about as you were going through that list is, how does the foundation decide which which of those undertakings to undertake? Um, is and to what extent are you working with the federal government to to do sort of gap analyses, or how do you make sure that you're not duplicating that you're that you're 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 filling unmet needs? No, it's it's an important question. Well, the Rockefeller Foundation has great resources; they're not infinite, and so a large part of this is where 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 is there a need that is not being filled, and how we might leverage that. The example of testing, I think, is probably the best example of that. Mark was before I, I was a wire from the outside before I joined. Mark was the center of it. It was a chance really to 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 make some of these initial investments with the goal, the specific goal of of keeping schools open and and applying a testing program to that. That was it was ten million dollars from the Rockefeller Foundation that then led to the report that Mark was a part of that then leveraged the larger program. So I think that's a key part of it, identifying where there's a specific need where we're able to act nimbly enough to fill that to demonstrate something that can be scaled by people with real money like the government. Mark, do you want to comment on that? All right, I uh, agree with the point. And uh, again, we've got better platforms for testing in place now. So hopefully this will be easier for the future and for you know, rapid test availability for flu, for RSV, for other um, ongoing public health threats. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, <clears throat> Senator Dashley. Bob, let me uh, go back to your comments uh, uh, earlier. <clears throat> the, I, I, I think before you arrived, one of the things that I, I commented on this morning was, was uh, the um, urgency of, of passing legislation this year. And I thought that the, 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 the legislation that we've got that passed out of help um, unanimously was sort of a metaphor for the country's response to our disaster. We've lost 13, uh, a million lives. We've got $17 billion in costs overall. And, and yet it seems as if we can't even find the, the consensus to move this legislation to enact it into law this year. Can you explain to me from the inside just why it is that it's been so hard to get something that I think is just almost a baby step to where we need to go in the longer term, 
but we can't even get that done. And I'm just curious if you have any better explanation than what I can provide today. Well, sir, I wish I could. I, I'm, I struggle with it myself in terms of trying to understand the, the situation when you talk about a million American lives alone. And, and again, the, the worldwide toll is obviously 10 times higher, more than that. It, it would seem that that would be obvious. I, I just, I, for, for what has been proposed in the prevent bill, for example, is very modest. Right. And is, and to your point, a baby step forward. Um, I, I wish I could explain to you. And, and I know that there, there are many um, members in place today who are struggling with the same idea, which is how do we get movement into this, uh, something so... Well, I, I must say it's a challenge for me not to despair about all of this effort. I mean, just, uh, you know, we, uh, there just seems to be so much need for us to get our hands around at least the embryonic stages of better prevention. And... Uh, we can't seem to pull that off. And even though a bill can pass unanimously with two highly respected members of Congress, or members of the Senate, right. Senator Byrd just deserves so much credit, and Senator Murray, and, and yet here we are. And I just, I'm just baffled. Well, sir, I'm not giving up uh, hope on Burr because uh, I'm <laughs> hoping he can pull a rabbit out of his head. He's, well, that's he's my a pretty resourceful too. guy. Mark, I'd just be curious. It's just so good to see you again, and thank you for all the the good things you've done for so many years. Uh, what would you do about the public health emergency if it expires in April? Uh, it's been a remarkable tool and it's done some yeah. awfully good things with scope of practice and better access and all of this. I'm just, I don't know what I would recommend. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a great question. Um, and back to how important CMS is in public health emergencies and in these continuing um, threats that are um, residuals from the acute part of, of COVID. Um, the agency, based on a lot of recommendations from outside group, is likely to continue some of the policies like uh, around more flexible billing for telehealth services and the like. Um, but I do think their best opportunity, um, Senator, is to continue the push towards these newer payment models that have made such a difference for many healthcare organizations. These are being used now in about 40% of um, the payments that traditional Medicare makes, a larger share in Medicare Advantage. And one nice thing about those payment models is that they come with more flexibility in what providers can bill for. So more flexibility in the use of telehealth, more flexibility in the use of community health workers that have been so important in the pandemic and reducing and in some cases eliminating those disparities by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status in, in vaccine use and by enabling healthcare organizations to put more resources into data like collaborating with local public health and, and addressing uh, uh, gaps in, in information. So that's an area where there is some bipartisan support and could help CMS to set a goal of having 100% of Medicare beneficiaries in these models by 2030. 30, um, close to 50% just in the next year or two, some help from Congress on accelerating that, which could include some metrics and accountability for, for better preparedness and, and inclusion in some of the CMS conditions of participation, I think would help a lot. Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you. I, it's, it's a complicated challenge. Yeah. I, I know that we're going to be grappling with it for some time to come. Dr. Gellin, I'm so pleased that you emphasize the importance of of this whole challenge we face around mis- and disinformation. And 
I worry that as we see science unfold, we're going to continue to see challenges around mis and disinformation, and and I would say politicization of that that uh, that information. Just to drill down a little bit more, um, since we have you here, are there one or two lessons learned from what we've experienced so far with regard to how to address it? I mean, part of the problem we had before is, of course, the changing circumstances, and that led to confusion, and that led to a lot of maybe misinformation. But, but what, what, if anything, have we learned so far from this experience that we could apply going forward? Well, well, sadly, I think one of the things we learned is not limited to this problem, as you suggested. We, you know, this is Mark and I were part of a discussion earlier this week where the the title was "Pandemics, Misinformation, Pandemics, and Democracy." So that's really where where you know it's a larger issue for which the the subtext is the same. I think that among the things we've learned is the the importance at the outset to say what you said earlier is that to be clear and honest with people about what you know and don't know. And, and that you're gonna to continue to fill in information and things may change as a result of that. To me, that was probably, uh, and maybe Steve is still here, has some comments about that. That didn't happen at the very beginning. And in my experience, that was the first thing that was on the, at the podium of every other public health crisis saying, it's, it's, it's foggy, here's what we know, things will get filled in and things may change. I mean, for, uh, Secretary Shalala highlighted this again, that the science is gonna change and there's a tsunami of science. And, you know, that we, sh we should have better anticipated that, that, that there was going to be a proliferation of science. And it's, it's the scientific method to have things counter the, la the, the you know, what other people thought. Um, you know, how many times have you heard that coffee's good for you or not good for you, or chocolate's good for you or not for you? So then people decide, they don't know, I'm going to do what I want. But I think that more seriously, I think we need to really to drill, drill down on this, not only to understand how to mitigate some of the sources, which is a, a, probably for another another commission, but how we can try to help people make the best decisions and get the best information. To me, the root the root here is to empower those in the, at the community level who are trusted sources, and to have and to have them be your be your guides. What the CDC director says, what the Surgeon General director says, is not as relevant as what somebody who you trust in your community will say. And that's going to come from different voices at different times. I think we need to take a hard look at how we do that in a way that's sustainable for everyday use, because this mis and disinformation is not just going to be limited to crisis. Well, that's very helpful. And I, I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're absolutely right. Community leaders can really, especially ones you have some relationship with, can be real truth tellers. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, uh, Congressman Langevin is on his way from Capitol Hill, so we're going to keep going as long as you could stay, but, but we're keeping some of you after um, we, we said we would. So if you have to go, we'll leave with our gratitude and, uh, and understanding as well. Congresswoman Brooks. Uh, thank you so much, and, and I'll try and be brief. brief. Um, Dr. Cadlett, can you share with us because we are coming up on the reauthorization of PAPA in 2023, and obviously with Senator Burr's departure from the Senate, uh, we're gonna need some champions in the Senate, um, both sides of the aisle, to focus on that. What would be your advice to us as to some of the top uh, issues we ought to be focusing on in reauthorization of PAPA? Were there authorities that you as ASPR had, didn't have, other agencies had, didn't have, uh, that you think we ought to focus on reauthorization of PAPA? Well, thank you, ma'am. One thing that is going to sound a little odd, but 
But it, it's really, I think, to reaffirm the role of the secretary uh, in these circumstances, which, again, the role of ASPR is to be an advisor to the secretary. And, and I think that was one thing, if, if, I had, if there could be a do-over during the pandemic, would be to ensure that, that the secretary was the point person. I know it's been the, the commission's view of the role of the vice president, and that's appropriate to have somebody in the White House, whoever that is, to manage that. But I think to manage the department, it really is the role of the secretary to do that. And, and, and in some ways, when that gets fragmented, that really, I think, you know, really dissipates the unity of effort for the department. So that would be one thing I would think would be important. The next thing I think is, is honestly, is somehow we have to look at the relationship between the federal government and the private health care system. And how do we functionally help them prepare better uh, I mean, obviously, the Provider Relief Fund became a, a very effective tool to do that. That was during crisis, but how do you do it in pre-crisis scenarios to ensure whether it would be a, and, and Secretary Shalil was talking about the issues about Congress dealing with programs rather than strategies. But what is the strategy that we need to use to basically work with the private sector, uh, not only in the pharmaceutical world, but also in the healthcare sector and the supply chain sector to, to basically kind of be better prepared in this. And this is, I think, something particularly where we, we need to relook at the national disaster medical system. NDMS is a war, uh, Cold War relic. Um, some people say the Cold War is back. Uh, I'd hate to think about that, but I think the idea that we, we have a system of, of healthcare, our federal system is shrinking, uh, shrinking numbers of veterans. The military has less need for a big infrastructure. And it really is incumbent on the private sector to pick up more of the load that would happen in any kind of contingency going forward, whether that be a pandemic or, God forbid, a war or some major natural disaster. Um, so that would be my second one. And the third one is, is really how do we focus on the industrial base? How do we ensure, uh, to the points made uh, by both Bruce and Mark, how do we make sure that we have adequate capacity to, to not only kind of do things for ourselves, but also help others. Uh, I think the example I would use is what happened in Ebola uh, in, in uh, 16, 17, 18, where, where it wasn't uh, necessarily our role to play uh, to produce a vaccine for Ebola, but we did. And by doing that, we not only helped that part of the world, but also protected ourselves uh, in, 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 the, in the honest way and the most gracious way to do that. So those would be three things that I think would be very central to the, to the role uh, of what we need to do in the next PAPA. I think the ASPR, the fact that it's now an operating division, is one step forward in what I would think is the evolution of that organization. Uh, still small, still but mighty in its strength, but I think that's one area that I would also look in how to expand that, the role of the ASPR to work with FEMA as its subject matter expert to bring the best of the whole department in response to any kind of crisis the country should have to respond. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Gellin, the, um, are there any lessons that we can learn from, because we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, and, um, and there really has been such sustained funding and what PEPFAR created for you know, low-income countries in particular, I think, really made a difference during uh, this pandemic. Um, any thoughts on you know, the lessons from PEPFAR that we can bring forward to you know, our response and, and the 
our country's view of dealing with this pandemic, you know, deal with COVID going forward. I'm glad you raised that because, and, and I've forgotten it's, the, it's this anniversary, it is remarkable how transformative that was, maybe more than any other global health program. And, I, and while it is looked to as the model, I think that there is, and it should be, but as a model, I think people are trying to layer things on top of it to try to see whether or not you can take advantage of that infrastructure. There may be ways to do that, and if so, to make sure that if that happens to whatever degree, it doesn't it doesn't dissipate some of the some of the focused effort. But clearly, what it's been able to do from its initial vision to now is is nobody thought that that could happen, and it's changed global health. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Oh, we got a few more minutes. If you do, uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, Dr. Cadillac, um the the uh, our, our uh, national blueprint, blueprint, as you know, calls for the development of a medical countermeasures response framework to uh, map, map out distribution and dispensing of uh, medical countermeasures from the uh, strategic. Uh, stockpile and other uh, sources. Um, do you think that's a good idea? And uh, if you do, um, how, how would you put it into effect? So, so I think it's a good idea. And I think one of the things that, again, to, to leverage what may exist, and again, the, the experience that we had during COVID was one where, uh, in the end, it was less important about being able to manage or handle the material than it was to direct it from the manufacturer to the end user. And I think that that really does require a closer relationship with the private sector, particularly the, 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 the vendors, as well as the manufacturers. Uh, because if we, if we develop an industrial-based policy correctly, where you have all the, the means by which to have something on hand that could be vendor-managed inventory, for example, or even some things that are maintained by the VA or by states, that that is supplemented by a surge capacity that either results from onshoring or nearshoring materials that allows you to basically meet the needs as you anticipate them. Pandemic is an unusual event. Obviously, it happens pretty much everywhere at the same time. But I still think even, even so, you can find other scenarios and contingencies where that becomes vitally important. So I think there needs to be a lot of focus on looking stem to stern from cradle to grave, if you want to call it, for these products that we will need in a crisis. And some of those products may be the very things like insulin, as we've seen, uh, which is in short supply or can be in short supply, but particularly in crises that would disrupt international uh, supply chains, particularly transportation. Those are things that we should have mapped out and, and war game out literally in a way that we haven't done so yet. And I think that that becomes what you're suggesting is the, the if you will, the, the roadmap to get there. Thank you. Uh, do my colleagues have other questions? Um, yeah, if, uh, no, please. Think, uh, uh, Bruce, um, you made the point about PEPFAR. I worry about PEPFAR, about layering. Um, its genius was its focus. Um, and while the infrastructure may be used for other things, but we have to be very careful about that. It seems to me the real long-term strategy that underlies all of this is um, our investments in NIH. With all due respect to all the other investments, that's the only long-term investment we've ever made. Mm -hmm. It paid off in vaccines. It paid off in COVID. 
Um, and I think recognizing that is really important. The question I want to ask both of you is that we've talked about vaccines. We, uh, we've talked about uh, the organization. I worry about the workforce, whether we're going to have the workforce of the future. We've burned them out. Uh, we're, uh, we did some things to expand the scope of practice. Um, some of that may be cut back. Um, what can we do to make sure that we not only have the next generation of scientists, but also of healthcare providers, um, and thinking about extension of those healthcare providers, expanding the scope of practice for nurses, for physicians assistants, using pharmacists better, um, integrating all of that, all that training. Have, um, Bruce, why don't I start with you? No, I, that's, I mean, it's, 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 it's an important highlight because you're right, people are burned out. I mean, at the, the good news at the front end, people are still applying. I'm surprised by that, but the numbers are still, are still compelling. They're good jobs in healthcare. No, they're, they're good, there are good jobs. Um, but despite the, what you're seeing and, the, uh, and, and how, how, how difficult it's been for people, it's, it still is attractive. But I think your point of, of trying to look at what the, what the critical roles are and which part of those are critical for which, which levels of training and to be able to expand it out that way Starting, starting from the top and going all the way down to see where you can do that. And then to ensure that there is not just the training, but there are career paths for people at each of those levels as adjuncts to what those core capabilities could be. I would just add one thing, and it, it's kind of a bank shot here in terms of your question, but it's, it's the role of the public health service, honestly. And, and I think there's been a, a desire to revitalize it, maybe expand it. But I think that that's a means by which you can bring people in and, and certainly get to the areas where you need equity and you need access and, and to do so. And it is, an, it is an investment and it is a commitment, but you can imagine to train people to serve in that fashion for a period of time and then, then they go off on their way to private practice or whatever. I think that's been a tried and true way that the military's service its requirements for healthcare but I also think that that's one way to introduce it into the civilian side, into the to the to the public service side. That's really particularly important. if it's linked to tuition remission and other yes, kinds of things exactly. that would give it economic incentives. Definitely. Yeah, I think the you know taking a look at what the range of incentives might be and trying to make sure that they're met from careers to tuition reimbursement to salaries. Well, uh, thank you very much, Congressman Langeman is here. Uh, thanks for your testimony today, which has been <clears throat> really helpful to us. And for that matter, thanks for your lifetime of public service. Uh, appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thanks. Be well. Hey, Bruce, great to see you. Thanks okay. for the picture. So, um, trust. Yeah, yeah well, I know. But, um, <laughs> do you still have that Yahoo email? No, I have a, I have a, uh, I have a.
from Capitol Hill. Okay, we'll come back to order uh, with our final witness of the day who would not be deterred by the House schedule for that and your persistence, we thank you. We also really want to thank you. As we know, you're in your last uh, weeks of service in the House for all, for your extraordinary record over all, but, uh, but the specific leadership you've shown on the issues that matter most to this commission, I will say very specifically that Congressman Langevin Langevin co-sponsored the amendment to the NDAA of 2017 that uh, ordered the uh, development, the, the uh, uh, writing and issuance of a national uh, uh, biodefense strategy. And um, that led, uh, uh, that was passed, and that I think is a big part of the reason why the Trump administration put out a uh, such a, a national strategy in 2018, and now more recently updated and, and I think greatly strengthened by uh, the Biden administration. So for that and so much else, we thank you. <clears throat> also, um, you trained uh, uh, Asha George, or, or she trained you. I was going to say, Mr. Chairman, she trained me, so <laughs> okay. let's get that clarified. Anyway, thanks for being here. and. Um, Generally speaking, as you know, you're, this panel, I'm sorry, Fred Upton couldn't be here, uh, is, is really uh, titled Congressional Perspective. So you have a blank canvas on which you can paint whatever you want. Good. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's great to be here with you and the members of the uh, commission. Uh, I do appreciate you having me here today. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I admit that I'm, I'm a little sentimental about this uh, appearance since it's one of my final speeches as a, as a sitting member of Congress. Uh, but in speaking to my uh, former members, uh, I'm assured that there is life after Congress yes. and uh, my former colleagues who have gone on to private life. And uh, so I do, I do look forward to that at, uh, at the, in the near future, uh, at the end of this year. Um, and I, I do want to start by saying that uh, my colleague Fred Upton really wanted to be here. He sends his apologies and his regrets uh, but his deep appreciation for your work uh, as well. Uh, as, as you all know uh, better than I do, the, the congressional schedule has sometimes a mind of its own. It, uh, uh, and one day is never like the next, and you can never count on the fact that you're gonna, trains are always going to run on time. So, uh, But I'm glad that I could get here because I, I, I have such respect for the work that you're doing. And, and as you mentioned, Asha George and I have worked uh, together now for a while, and she was uh, uh, staff director on my, uh, my subcommittee on these issues. Um, what we gather today, you know, at this time uh, during a very particularly crucial uh, moment in uh, in our history, one which uh, has wide-ranging implications in the future of our national security, uh, and uh, for your work as uh, commissioners uh, for the uh, bipartisan commission on, on biodefense. So, in, in my capacity as uh, the, the chairman of uh, the Cyber uh, Innovative Technologies and Information Systems Subcommittee on the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, I spent quite a bit of, of time thinking about both uh, non-conventional threats and, and how we must respond to them. And in my previous iteration, I was also uh, the chairman of the uh, Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee on, on Armed Services uh, prior to that, and then uh, same uh, on uh, the, the Homeland Security Committee. So these are issues I've spent quite a bit of, of time focusing on. Uh, biological weapons pose clearly a, a distinct threat 
to our nation. Uh, and it's one of those things that, that truly does keep me uh, up at, at night, uh, especially when you think of uh, bioengineering and how uh, enemies and adversaries can uh, manipulate even uh, natural pathogens to potentially weaponize them. Uh, and of course, if the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, taught us anything, uh, we learned that they uh, do represent uh, a threat uh, that we are woefully under, underprepared to face. So during my time in Congress, uh, as a member of both the House Armed Services Committee and Homeland Security Committee, uh, I've sought to elevate the conversation surrounding this, uh, this issue and these issues to promote sensible, robust national uh, biodefense policies. So uh, as we know, uh, our adversaries seek to develop, proliferate, acquire, or use mechanisms of warfare, both conventional and unconventional, against our service members, our allies, uh, innocent civilians, uh, both overseas and, uh, and here at home. And that's why several years ago, I included the requirement, uh, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, uh, for the National Blueprint of Biodefense uh, and the National Defense Authorization Act uh, with my friend and, and colleague, Representative Joe Wilson. This endeavor uh, has produced an excellent starting point for discussion uh, and debate, and I'm thrilled that uh, it has pushed us onto a path towards continued uh, viable risk mitigation and the development of, of innovative solutions, whether that be in the lab or in uh, communicative uh, forums such as this. And uh, there can be no doubt that these solutions and initiatives are greatly needed. Russia's uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine demonstrates the danger uh, of real chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear threats uh, and, uh, and uh, the wide reach of their impacts. Vladimir Putin uh, and his genocidal warfare uh, war machine provide a terrifying case study uh, for the practice of modern war and underscore uh, the very the ever-present possibility of a weak, desperate leader turning to the use of unconventional warfare. The old saying, you know, you don't corner a rat uh, and uh, that uh, uh, rat would get uh, desperate there'd be no telling what uh, that individual could do. So we cannot ignore the possibility of the misuse of chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear threats by rogue nation state uh, adversaries, nor can we discount the distinct threat of terrorists or other non-state actors wielding biological weapons to cause devastation across our, our military uh, force uh, or our, our, our homeland. The United States must be more focused than ever on this issue even as we continue to face a broad spectrum uh, of threats. Moreover, the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic have emphasized the need for a sound biodefense. The past three years have been uh, exceptionally challenging, of course, for the United States, as we've struggled to manage the spread of COVID-19. So without a doubt, COVID has revealed many ways in which our nation was caught off guard by a public health crisis of this scale. We can uh, be sure uh, that uh, threat actors uh, across the globe uh, took notice of our underpreparedness. And even with the, uh, the experience we required from, we, that we've acquired uh, by moving through a global pandemic, we retain unprecedented, uh, we remain uh, under, underprepared uh, to face similar challenges in the future. So here, I believe it's essential that we address this glaring national security weakness before it's too late. So the possible uh, development of biological weapons, particularly uh, in the age of open networks and shared information, is deeply troubling. 
uh, in the age of fast moving emerging technologies, any bad actor, even acting alone, could develop the capability to carry out a biological attack. Dual use technologies, which uh, present outst uh, uh, outstanding benefits to our, our national security innovation bases, innovation base, must still be considered carefully through the lens of biodefense. Misuse or, or uh, use under malicious intent present a distinct danger to our nation. And as we see expanded use of capability of artificial intelligence, we also face the expanded uh, ability to create and manipulate new pathogens. While AI gives us uh, insight and ability to explore solutions to biological problems, uh, uh, to, uh, um, problems, it could also provide uh, platforms to inspire and uh, inform the creation of new biological concerns. So we must continue to invest in science and technology in order to provide uh, better cross-cutting capabilities across all levels uh, of government. So we cannot allow these investments to falter, and Congress must remain committed to protecting and enhancing that financial support. Should we face any sort of biological threat, we must ensure that our nation is well prepared and all sectors of government have the capacity to work hand in glove to carry out sound solutions. So we must also strive to improve integration across our workforce in order to achieve greater efficiencies when responding to crises. The biodefense enterprise is spread across a number of departments and agencies, all of which have different priorities according to their missions. A lack of holistic integration can lead to overly du duplicative, cumbersome efforts, or worse, capability gaps that can be exploited. So we cannot fall prey to jurisdictional squabbles when it comes to ensuring that a whole-of-government approach drives investment and buy-in across the federal government. And uh, the breadth uh, of our approach goes uh, beyond the United States. We are well aware that biological agents, once released, recognize no boundaries. These agents are, are truly borderless, with the capability to bypass all traditional uh, defenses. The nature of these threats requires that we work in concert with our allies and our partners, taking proactive steps to remain ahead of the curve, improving our, our foreign partners' capability to secure and dispose of harmful biological materials is in everyone's best interest. So investigating and, uh, and sorry, investing in the cybersecurity uh, of our research base also is another key component of preventing biological uh, biological event. Uh, it's necessary that researchers work with dangerous and, and transmissible pathogens in order to understand their effects, but it is also paramount that we safeguard that research from malicious actors by implementing necessary digital safeguards and mitigating vulnerabilities that could be exploited to steal sensitive data, which could in turn aid in the synthesis uh, of new pathogens. Each of us, uh, each of the topics that we've discussed must factor into our informed, overarching strategy for biodefense. And luckily, the Biden administration has been leading the way in this space. As you all know, in October, President Biden released the National Biodefense Strategy and Implementation Plan. This comprehensive strategy will serve our nation well, but is reliant upon cross-government implementation and Congress's willingness to provide the necessary funding for much-needed research and development efforts. I'm happy to report that Congress is making progress in this area, working to protect our warfighters and the nation from these threats. Just this afternoon, we were able to pass the National Defense Authorization Act 
for fiscal year 2023, and I was thrilled to see, a significant, see significant provisions from the city subcommittee pass on the House floor. Now, I'd love to share a bit more about, uh, about one provision in particular that will help us move the needle uh, on these issues, ensuring that research and development in the biotechnology field is well positioned for the future. The bill authorizes over $300 million to create a new class of biomanufacturing capabilities and facilities, which would provide the ability to transition products successfully tested in the lab to, the commercial, to, to commercial scale. This will strengthen the bioindustrial manufacturing base in the United States by enabling research into a new generation of chemicals and materials, such as carbon neutral cement and carbon negative commodity chemicals. So this effort is an important step forward for our nation's efforts to prepare for a worst case scenario uh, threat. Zooming out uh, to the research landscape as a whole, though our nation faces a massive backlog in laboratory investments. More than $5.7 billion is the latest report to Congress that deficit represents. This deficit hamstrings research across our defense and innovation base, including uh, on uh, issues of biodefense. This NDAA cycle, I work to secure hundreds of millions of additional dollars in federal funding for our nation's laboratories to help fix their crumbling infrastructure. Critically important if we're going to continue to attract and retain the best and the brightest talent uh, in these fields. So this is a good step, but there's so much work more to be done to ensure that this systemic problem is fixed once and for all. Our work here requires, of course, continued focus ahead and a defiant refusal to slide backwards, as we almost did with the proposed closing of the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center in 2017. I'm thrilled Congress was able to sustain funding for this important research being done at Fort Detrick. So we must ensure that members of Congress continue to understand this threat to our national security. It is on members of Congress to further these discussions ask for briefings from the defense and intelligence communities to stay on top of this threat, evaluate and elevate the debate and guidance and advice presented to us by experts and secure the resources necessary to keep our nation out of harm's way. So in conclusion, as I look back on my more than two decades in the House of Representatives, my work in national security has been one of the greatest honors and privileges of my career. It is my strong belief that members of Congress who devote their time and attention to these issues have not just an opportunity, but an obligation to leave the country in a safer place than it was when they first began their work. It's a weighty responsibility, but one that I've worked hard to fulfill since I was elected to Congress 22 years ago. Since then, our nation has been confronted by a complex and dynamic set of threats from a global war on terror to the present day land war in Europe to a multitude of threats from across the globe. While there is more work to be done, I believe that my colleagues understand the threats that we face today better than they did 10 years ago. And luckily, groups like the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense are helping to lead the way. So thank you again for inviting me to participate in your meeting today and for your dedication to this critical issue. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much, Congressman. That was wonderful. It was kind of a valedictory, if I can say so, building on um, your decades of leadership in this area, frankly, reminds me, and I'm sure everybody here, of how much we're going to miss you. But uh, I hope you'll find ways, as you said before, there is life after Congress. Several of us can testify to that. All of us, as a matter of fact. And uh, I, know, I know you'll find ways to 
continue uh, to bring your experience and, and your wisdom, frankly, to bear on these problems. Um, I, I want to ask this question of you. Um, uh, Dr. Red, who's still here, uh, talked about the uh, first concern he had going forward was how to sustain public interest in biodefense, particularly as the, the COVID-19 crisis has receded and people have started to think about other things that one of the other witnesses, Dr. Gillen, on the last panel referred to a cycle of neglect, panic, and then neglect again in these uh, matters. So uh, there's no easy answer, but you've had a lot of experience. Um, how, how do we uh, try to sustain the interest in the, these issues, which you had all along, whether there was a, a crisis or not, uh, in, in Congress among our leaders? Well, I, I think you're you're on point. That's a, a legitimate concern. Look, there's uh, uh, there's all we know. We've heard and we've experienced COVID, COVID fatigue and people wanting to to move on. Um, and uh, it, it's really important that we do keep a, a focus and attention on uh, the bio threats that we potentially uh, do face going forward. And uh, ongoing efforts like this type of a, a dialogue, this type of forum, are, are essential. But I would also uh, encourage uh, people that are that are experts in the field uh, to con continue to stay engaged with members of Congress and their staff. Um, you know, uh, yearly briefings, a, a uh, opportunity to just re refresh uh, uh, on where we were, where we're going, where we are, uh, is really important. People can use those expertise to sensitize members of Congress and the staff to the threats that we continue to face. You know, if we're silent, you know, the issues. Uh, kind of get swept under the rug or overtaken by, by other issues. But it's, uh, it, it's really important that we keep this uh, front and center and also continue to focus on, on lessons learned. I think one of the big lessons learned was that um, uh, you know, we didn't even have enough testing supplies uh, on hand. And I, I hope that you know, as we, um, uh, we go through budget cycles, we'll look at strategic national stockpiles and, and look at you know, what do we knew? What, what, what do we what do we need? What do we need to have uh, continued on hand? We we set up priorities with where we spend our, our dollars, all right? And so making sure that budgets are reflective of the need for preparedness. And uh, so testing uh, equipment and supplies, um, you know, the swabs, everything from the swabs to, to masks to ventilators and things of that nature, make sure that we are well-stocked, well-prepared, so that should something uh, catastrophic happen in the future that we're we're ready but uh, most importantly keeping this issue front and center uh, so it's top of mind uh, especially for policymakers but also for the American people is essential going forward great thank you Donna um, thank you very much and thank you for your service and, Donna, and good to see you, you again friendship you too Mara. we miss you thank you um, I like to go back to what you said about the lab, but before that, I hope you'll put this statement in the congressional record. Yeah, I agree. Thank I think you. it's very important that you, I got it, that you put it in the congressional record so that others can see as comprehensive as it, as it was. Um, could you talk a little more about the money for labs? Because I'm very interested in the whole, which was a big weakness during COVID. Yeah, so the, the national labs, I have to say, 
it's uh, you know, borders on a national disgrace when you go and visit these places and how mm -hmm. uh, the infrastructure is, is crumbling, and uh, you know, uh, everything from leaky roofs to just you know, old sometimes Cold War uh, facilities built in the mm -hmm. you know the fifties and uh, or, or or before, and and I've I've toured several of them and I'm just just appalled at, at how uh, you know their need of, of replacement repair. So we were able to put significant uh, amounts of money in this time as a down payment to repairing and improving and replacing uh, this, uh, this aging infrastructure. But it's going to take uh, uh, ongoing sustained commitment to do that and, and I hope others in Congress will take up the, the call to make those further investments. And again, it's essential uh, too that if, if we want to attract in government the best and the brightest talent, um, it's going to be hard to keep people if you're, you're working in crumbling infrastructure. So mm -hmm. uh, we made a, a significant down payment in this, uh, this year's NDAA, uh, hopefully matched by uh, requisite appropriations and the appropriations uh, bill that we're hoping to get a budget before the end of the year. We've got a lot of work to do to get there, but uh, we're making progress. Good. I yield. Thank you. Jim Greenwood. You too. Uh, Bob Cadillac began his um, testimony today looking at how much was incorporated in the in the National Defense Authorization Act today versus what we're spending on biodefense and 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 in spite of the fact that the pandemic cost us trillions of dollars and you know so the, the un, un, illogical reality of that um, so you know, we're we're going to be focused. We, we began by, by saying that, you know, that, that one of the big problems we have is that Congress has a tendency to lock barn doors after horses are gone because their attention is turned elsewhere. Um, the, the horses are gone and, and they're still not locking the barn doors so well. Um, and so you've been successful on a bipartisan level with Congressman Wilson in getting work done on this field. Right now, in terms of what we need to get done, um, where do you see the partisan divides? Where are the parties differing um, on these issues? And and given your background and experience, how do what do we need to do to to bridge those gulfs? So the one thing I will say that's still a, a, a bright spot is that when it comes to national security issues, protecting our men and women in uniform, uh, making sure that we're providing for them, uh, protecting for our national security at home. There is broad, broad bipartisan support, but getting the focus on the issues of, that, that matter the most is the is the real is the real challenge. You know the you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and and if if we're we're silent on these issues and they're not getting adequate attention, we don't have experts speaking out, educating members of Congress and the staff, keeping it front and center as budgets are developed. Then that's where the I think the biggest danger is in, in complacency. I think when 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 uh, members understand the the threat and it's real. That um, uh, that is uh, there's going to be the the both the policy support and the funding for it, but it needs to be made uh, real. It needs to be made constant, and it's not just something that's 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 you know out there and you know may never happen. That we have to make it uh, the point that it's a, a real possibility that these threats could threaten the homeland and and potentially have catastrophic consequences. So, so you argue it's, it's more focused than it is policy or political differences? I, I completely think that it's, it's more focused than, than anything else. And okay. look, we, have a, we face, a, you know, and I suppose an endless 
lists of, of threats of individuals that wish us harm, we need to prioritize about you know, those that are, that are most significant. And this, again, could have, could have catastrophic consequences. I'll, um, I still remember being, um, you know, uh, it was a, a wake-up call when um, uh, former Secretary of the Navy Richard Danzig said to me, and I, when I challenged him on, on uh, the threat of uh, a potential anthrax attack uh, against the country. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, how much are we talking about this stuff? You know, is it tanker trucks full of this stuff that would cause, uh, uh, could cause catastrophic damage? He said, very nonchalantly, not at all. He said, you could have something the size of a fire extinguisher, uh, something weaponized aerosized anthrax that was sprayed from the top of a tall building, create a plume about 50 miles wide, 100 miles long, and there'd be about, uh, untreated, about a 90% death rate. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that keep me up at night. Those are the things that we need to keep on the, you know, the, the minds of policymakers that you know, we have work to do to make sure that we are preventing these threats from, uh, from being carried out to action. Yeah, thank you, and, and all the best to you in the future. Thank you. Uh, Jim, thanks for focusing on uh, bioweapons, because we started with the dual uh, um, jurisdiction or interest in 2014 in uh, bioterrorism and infectious disease pandemics. And as Bob Cadillac said before, he was really more focused on the first, as you are, by your committee jurisdiction. And that threat remains probably greater today than it was then for a lot of reasons. But I wanted to thank you for bringing us back to that. Senator Dashwell. Well, I just join my colleagues, Jim, in thanking you for all of your good work and your leadership and the commitment you've made to your country for these last 22 years. I, 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 all day long today, I've been talking about PREVENT, the PREVENT Act, and as sort of a case study of, of you know, sort of what's, what our problem is and, and sort of a metaphor for how the country looks at pandemic preparedness going forward. And, you know, it, it, on a scale of one to 100, it's probably a five or a 10 in terms of what it can really accomplish. It was passed out of a committee unanimously, and I know it's in the Senate, but we, I'm just curious if you have any, any thoughts on, on why something as obvious as that is, the passing the PREVENT Act would, would really get us started, even though it's a small step. Even that seems to be a, 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 a hill too high to climb. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, and I, I agree with Donna, I hope you put your, your comments in the congressional record because you've given us a comprehensive review. But it comes down to nuts and bolts of passing legislation eventually. And if we can't even pass the PREVENT Act, I'm just wondering just what prospects there are for actually doing something going forward. But um, if you had to, Give us your analysis of why even the PREVENT Act is too much, uh, is, a, is a bridge too far. I, I, I'd welcome it. Yeah, and, and I'd have to do a little deeper dive on, on some of the sticking points of the PREVENT Act, why it's not, it's not moving forward. I mean, the, the, I you know, do get concerned, I get frustrated by uh, um, the jurisdictional, jurisdictional battles that happen in Congress. And uh, you could have a great idea, but you know, if you can't, you have sequential referral issues. It doesn't uh, move out of uh, out of committee. Doesn't move forward to the floor. Uh, it's a, a jurisdictional battle, battles have been the, the bane of my existence in, in my time in Congress. And so many good ideas uh, never see the light of day because you can't uh, get the the sign off from the, uh, the the many other different committees. I, I get frustrated. You know, this uh, on the 
different topic, but cybersecurity. I've done a deep dive on that one. We have some 80 different committees and subcommittees that claim some type of jurisdiction over, over cybersecurity. And we wonder why, uh, why we can't move cybersecurity legislation through more quickly and with greater agility. And, you know, the, the Prevent Act is, I'm sure, a victim of that same exact uh, uh, frustration. So, uh, great idea. Uh, it's just, um, you know, the, the, the founding fathers did not make it easy for legislation to move through Congress. They wanted it to be a slow, deliberate process, and that works us against us sometimes. Uh, but, you know, the efforts that you all are doing and the continue to focus on that act are essential. Look, in my, my training in, in political science, public administration, both my undergraduate and graduate degrees it, it taught me, you know, the, the three things. Uh, making public policy isn't uh, always easy or fast, but you have a, a problem, a solution, a window of opportunity. Those three things don't often line up, but when they do, you've got to be ready to push it across the finish line. So that's why it's essential that we continue this work and we continue to make sure that we are ready so that when there is that opportunity, we, we do get that, that act and others like it across the finish line. Thank you, <clears throat> Congresswoman Brooks. Well, thank you so much, Jim. And Congress is certainly going to miss you. And it's those words of wisdom that you just imparted and, and like uh, Donna shared. And I do hope you enter your remarks into the congressional record. It would be will. good for our you, colleagues it. to see. And uh, But I think um, keeping the attention and or getting the, the attention and the focus among our colleagues on these issues is a huge challenge for us. And, um, I, but I think your statement about the fact that the men and women in the House and Senate come together like to, to make sure that the men and women who serve our country are protected, it is the one thing that really, you know, binds the two parties together like no other issues. And so I, what more could we be doing to maybe elevate um, the Armed Services Committee in our, um, you know, in our work, uh, what are there any other recommendations you'd like this commission to make um, that we could support to be supportive of the men and women in uniform? And how can we take um, uh, recommendations as to how we could support the military specifically, both at home and abroad? Um, you know, what would be a couple of your top recommendations? Relative to bio threats, biodefense, um, what we've learned during COVID. So, uh, I think here's an opportunity, perhaps, where um, either experts in the field or our colleges and universities can lend their expertise, meeting with staff and members of Congress, whether it's in their district office or uh, here in, in in Washington, to further educate and and reiterate how important these uh, these things are. I think it's again constantly, you know, pinging them and making sure that it's on, on their radar. Uh, people that are expert or that, that, have, that have served in the military, that have dealt with these issues, if, you know, if they're looking for ways to contribute and continue to be involved in serving their country, uh, making sure that, uh, that they're, they're uh, here, connecting with the policymakers that, that represent them. Uh, that's another way that, that we could, again, have further involvement and sustained effort to keep these issues uh, front and center. I think that's, the, that's among the biggest things that I, would, that I could offer. Thank you. I agree. We need to uh, elevate their voices, especially those who've dealt with it at home and abroad, because I do think members of Congress and their staff will listen. So Absolutely. thank you. 
Uh, thank you, Susan. <clears throat> Jim, thanks again. I hope that, I, I'm sure I speak for all of us here, that we can find a way to uh, continue uh, to work with you, or at least to keep in touch with you. We wish you I like that a lot. well in the next chapter. You, you've been a perfect uh, person to end this day of testimony, which has really been very uh, constructive, a lot of uh, uh, experience uh, before us that will definitely help um, us to update our 2015 report, which is uh, what this is all about. So thank you for all your service. God bless you.